Ja, hallo und herzlich willkommen bei einer weiteren Sitzung. Zu einer Session auf der Corona Investigative Session, uh, Session Number 102, enormous. And I wanted to take the opportunity to thank for all the congratulations that we've got for our, our 100th session. Many people took the opportunity to support us financially with uh, an indication on that event. Uh, we are very, very grateful for that, and we um, appreciate very much that our work is appreciated and we can make a contribution to a society. We've called today's session Undercover or Uncover, however you'd like to read it. And uh, there's lots of things going on behind our backs at the moment, which many people are not aware of. For example, what is going on in terms of WHO regulations, which are going to be passed through um, the presentation of Ms. von der Leyen, that in the 27 member countries from June or July, the green passport is uh, applicable. So they are working forward on their agenda uh, outside of what the public may be aware. As, for example, uh, the uh, vaccination mandate debate in the federal parliament. But there are attempts to bring this in back through the back door. So we are trying to uncover this and we want to make sure that these efforts going on behind the scenes are made visible for everyone and that we can object against it. Another point in Nuremberg, there is also the walks going on. And for a great pleasure, we've seen people with a great banner um, advertising for the Corona Committee. Uh, we gratefully appreciate this, uh, that people take opportunity to point out and make public what we have been found out, uh, found out in many of our sessions here. And another point that I've heard from emails and um, talking to people that there seem to be some of the things that we have been pointing out a couple of a long time ago seem to be manifesting we have pointed out to the fertility problem that we expect uh, to emerge after the vaccinations now it seems to emerge that um, around the week 2020 uh, many um, pregnancies are lost. Normally, the uh, risky week is uh, until walk f week 14 and then towards the end of the pregnancy. And uh, especially during this phase, but this is a speculation, I can only say this as a suspicion here um, that the placenta has uh, built up in such a way that the vessels um, will not uh, supply the child's body with sufficient blood and uh, also transporting spikes causing thromboses. That has been observed a couple of times that uh, uh, babies or fetus in that uh, age 
are affected. We know that concrete from a region in Germany that there seems to be a 30% lower fertility rate or birth rate. That is dramatic. From the same region, we hear that people who want to get pregnant, uh, vaccinated people, people who've got the jab, let's put it that way, have big problems to uh, generate um, to, to, to make babies and um, that is one thing we want to keep up and if you have observations of this kind doctors nurses we will be happy to get information from the whistleblower website or our website or our email uh, we will collect the um, information I'm here alone right now you are away maybe you want to say hello I don't want to uh, detain us. Uh, we'll have two videos that we'll uh, watch before we um, see uh, James uh, Rogowski. Uh, we should start with Renata Holzeisen. We're all lawyers here and Renata can give us some positive report from Italy. That's uh, what's happening. Sometimes things happen in one way and then they happen the other way. And we have to keep an overview. There's something positive for unfolding there and we need to keep an eye on that. Okay, thank you. As we have reported already, we have a great number of proceedings filed um, with uh, the most uh, strict uh, COVID-19 vaccination mandates. And now uh, in a proceedings concerning the parents of children who are quarreling about the vaccinations um, with these uh, experimental gene therapy injections. Uh, the leading territorially um, attorney of law has given a written statement in a concrete case. It is the attorney of law um, of the highest instant um, in that region of Sicily and the attorney of law in Italy for the first time has used the term experimental medicine which is crucial for us because until now um, the uh, fact that um, these are experiments um, have never been handed out black and white in written in this case of uh, by a public prosecutor and uh, this prosecutor did so and with that he pointed out the risk of adverse effects <clears throat> that coincide with this but what we do see is that slowly probably based on the amount a massive amount of um, deaths becoming uh, public daily especially of young people young healthy people uh, sportsmen 
who simply collapse or don't wake up in the morning that there is a high peak of such cases and this is being overwhelming that we are seeing some concern arising with amongst the population and that includes the judges in general as well and of course the massive amount of files claimed uh, of complaints made by us with the all the evidence provided it starts to bear fruit now and here and there still rare but we do see responsible um, bodies in the justice system that start to call things by their name so we are hoping for a breakthrough to come um, because we all know this is experimental substances uh, that are by fact um, as admitted by the producer themselves that um, there is the very interesting document uh, the uh, investors report of uh, the US uh, stock um, which has just been submitted by Biontech according to the legal reclamations and where the producer themselves declare that they have no idea whether they will ever get a final approval and authorization for the first and only product, by the way, which they brought uh, to the market, Combinati, um, which is a gene manipulating injection, because it may happen that neither the efficacy nor the safety can be confirmed. This alone is enough to prove the experimental nature of these substances. That is uh, admitted by the producers themselves. And I want to point out that in the European Union, we have analog um, regulations which apply everywhere appropriately or accordingly uh, with stricter uh, authorizations for experimental uh, drugs and uh, for the applica application of um, experimental drugs. So if we manage in the juridical proceedings to make uh, clear that these substances are in an experimental stadium, the clinical test phases three are still ongoing because neither efficacy nor safety has been proven so far as the producers in their investors reports officially report and confirm that means that we have an absolute super GAU um, in all the systems startings with the authorities um, giving the approval and breaking it down to the individual health authorities including the vaccination doctors because for an drug which is experimental first of all there can't be 
any mandatory um, treatment with this of any kind whatsoever and of course the respective person if she is interested in uh, getting that uh, drug they have to be fully informed that means they have to be informed about the stage of development of the test and the experiment and the clinical testing the product is in what risks are connected to this what research has not been done we know that for example no studies to the cancerogenity has been made this is explicitly been confirmed by the um, the um, French colleagues um, which had addressed the GEMA, the European um, Medical Authorization Authority. Uh, these documents are available to me and they clearly stated that this was not undertaken because it would have taken too long. So that means the global population is subjected to a massive risk, a public, a public uh, population, which um, if you want to call it a medical, uh, medical drug, I would rather stay with the term uh, substance that uh, the population was subjected to an um, enormous risk that tumors may uh, develop. And in addition, there were no studies to the gene toxicity made. Also, this wasn't tested. And we do know by now, based on a study conducted by Malmo, the university there, um, there have been research going into this direction in the US. And in addition, there is the scientists who have recently uh, made an expert, created an expertise on my request by Michael Palmer and Professor Zuhat Bhakti, who clearly show, and that is a known fact, that viruses in a natural infection by chance may the virus. This is rare, but in a natural infection, it may happen. But this is a known procedure that a virus may be uh, modifying the human genome. Now you have to imagine these substances, take these spike proteins, which are modified, they are injected. And we know that this triggers a process in the human body um, that the nucleic acid, um, which uh, triggers triggers that production of the spike proteins in the cells. And we know by now from research that this is a process that we don't even know how long it takes place. But we do know for sure that it may last for 60 days at least. That has been proven. That means we have no idea how long the body will act as a reactor for the production of these proteins with its cells.
Rose, and that in terms means an unconquerable risk, um, as the scientists have confirmed, of a gene modification. And we are now using this on billions of people repeatedly on the uh, population in Italy. We are in the fourth round of injections now and uh, following the will of the governments the fourth the fifth round is up in autumn that means the risk that people and the human beings are subjected to that uh, its dna will be modified with unforeseeable consequences by that uh, experimental injection it's absolute madness and beyond this that we do not have any proof uh, we do not we do know by now that these substances neither protect against the infection nor the um, infection of the people who are infected and that uh, these have can have massive side effects including death and other uh, effects that's one side of it and now there's another side to it which is that we are looking at gene manipulating substances here and these can change our human genome and that is why this is never ever to be allowed on this emergency use approval rules uh, as far as the uh, US, Great Britain and these countries are concerned, including Australia, or the restricted uh, authorization as far as the European Union is concerned. This is something that may must not have been allowed for the population and we are now working on this aspect to make sure that in a short notice of time we've got a scientific basis and we are developing this on a juridical basis now that within short time we will be able to take all steps legally possible in order to make sure that the GMA will withdraw that uh, authorization. It cannot be that this type of substance in the context of a restricted authorization is used as a vaccine, by the way, which is completely wrongly declared. Uh, this is something that is an absurdum legally and has a dimension of illegally illegality with an ever-extending list. It is simply incredible if you see the amount of evidence uh, emerging here and uh, now there is a strict need a an emergent uh, emerging need um, emergency need to take action here and this can be done everywhere in the world where these uh, substances are approved as uh, as vaccines it is absolutely illegal for mass application it is not intent for a 
sick person for a patient in which a, a drug is applied or applicable because the uh, pathology and uh, the human genome can be modified and where that may be um, treated off uh, after a careful balancing of the possible other opportunities normal uh, therapeutical Proximity, that is a part of the approval procedure and in this case although we are uh, injecting nucleic acids which uh, use our cells as reactors to produce the spike toxin in our bodies we uh, now have this gene toxicity and the cancerogenity which has not been checked at all that is pure criminality and um, <clears throat> this is where we have to intervene now and i'm convinced that this is probably the best and fastest way for us to put an end to this uh, spooky situation worldwide. Renata, wasn't it the case that in the documentation that the different producers of these experimental substances provided to EMA, especially uh, Cominati provided by BioNTech Pfizer, isn't it that, that at that time you had already noticed that they pointed out that, that they are not sure whether all of that is effective and whether it is secure, secure, excuse me, and whether in the leaked contracts that we have, we found the same comment saying that we as producers cannot say whether it will be effective and say whether it's safe? That's true, exactly. In terms of effect, uh, uh, effectiveness, EMA um, pointed out that based on the results of the very limited clinical tests that were performed, it is not possible to conclude that the infection chain is interrupted, i.e. infectiousness and uh, uh, infection are prevented and also EMA declared that due to the small number of uh, cases and the mild courses they take there is no statistical significant um, conclusion that would be possible whether severe cases of COVID-19 could be prevented. That was um, written in the publicly available assessment reports uh, from the get-go, which should be known to our um, health authorities worldwide and um, the official narrative was uh, a different one of course they said one jab and we're immune and we will interrupt the um, uh, infection chain and um, so that was a lie and everybody who uh, put the finger on this was uh, 
considered uh, irresponsible and uh, conspiracy theorist. And um, then the management plan, i.e. those documents, which were were made available as officially accessible documents by uh, the producers and um, published um, on the web page of the uh, medication um, uh, supervisory authority. Um, even these documents clearly said um, that it is unknown what impact the application of these substances have uh, might have on pregnant women, on fetuses, on um, babies that haven't been weaned yet, on um, people who have any sort of inflammation in their bodies that can mean anything. And it also pointed out that they uh, cannot uh, say anything about the mid and long term consequences. Um, and they also pointed out that um, even the blurb indicates that uh, nothing can be said about um, um, interaction with other substances. So basically, the producers said that they knew nothing about their uh, substance. And we also pointed out that this uh, gene toxicity and cancerogenesis studies had not been made, and they couldn't have been made in this short time available, which is, of course, the basis for um, licensing of uh, medication. Everybody who knows about medication licensing processes knows that these types of studies take their time. And EMA didn't do this because they wanted to bring this to mass to the mass market. And this goes way beyond any any framework, really, you can't uh, do worse in the context of uh, the licensing, the approval of medication. The precautionary uh, principle, which is, of course, a very fundamental principle in medication legislation, has completely brushed aside here, like as if it did not exist at all. So the world population was used as guinea pigs from the get-go. Guinea pigs for genetically based or gene um, technology based uh, products launched by the pharmaceutical industry. And these products were tested on billions of people, no matter what the costs, independently of the damages that have already um, 
come to the fore, but we don't even know what happens in the mid and long term because the problem of cancerogenesis and uh, gene toxicity are problems that will only come out in the mid and long term. So we as people, as human beings, as citizens, as world population have been completely dehumanized. So medical legislation applicable in the EU, in the individual uh, member states and overseas was ignored by the licensing authorities, by the governments, by the competent health authorities in the worst way it could have been ignored and violated. By now we've got reports from England. We know that in England and Israel many, many, many people have been vaccinated in inverted commas and we know that uh, we got early reports according to which the uh, jabbed people especially suffer from COVID. Not PCR test-wise, positively tested, but COVID with symptoms. And that includes other symptoms, which by now we have to assume that they were triggered by the vaccines, uh, by the due to the damage of the immune system. I got the last report from England yesterday. 92% of the people who die with COVID symptoms now are vaccinated. So by now, everybody should start thinking of, uh, especially those who are thinking about getting the shot. Absolutely. And I would like to point out another uh, thing, uh, the topic of the green certificate within the EU and uh, vaccination passes, generally speaking. I mean, the green certificate, which uh, basically means that it creates a, an equal status between uh, people who have been treated with these substances or the recovered people or uh, people who have subjected to uh, PCR tests or antigen tests. Well, from the get-go it wouldn't have been possible, but now that it is indisputable and proven based on official documentation that these substances do not reduce the infectiousness and um, infection risk of the people treated with these substances, how can you maintain this green certificate? So the people treated with these substances may absolutely be infectious. So it is an absolute discrimination. There is no doubt about this anymore of untreated people whose freedom of movement is denied, a fundamental right within the European Union. And I would like to underscore that particularly here in Italy, we have this uh, instrument, just like in other EU countries, have applied this tool um, at the national level in an abusive way 
And it is clear by now that due to the lack of effectiveness, and we have uh, innumerable official documents that point out that there is no efficacy. The documents that the producers have submitted to the SEC in the US um, confirming this. Well then, if at the EU level it's not possible to force the hand of the EU Commission, then the last, the, uh, the, the only thing we can do is leave the EU. I am an enthusiastic European, but if the EU Commission violates uh, fundamental rights, maintaining such discriminatory measures that are uh, completely illegal, then we as citizens and the individual member states can only flee from this construct. If we can't force EU um, MPs, uh, European members of the European Parliament to back paddle, to engage brain based on the information available, ending this nonsense, then it is simply unacceptable that such discrimination belies any uh, evidence which cannot be denied. Maybe we should uh, remind of the fact that the chef, the boss of the EMA, just because uh, before she became in her position was one of the most important lobbyists of the pharmaceutical industry. <clears throat> and maybe we should uh, remind people that the health commissioner, commissioner, I think it's a Greek name, who uh, did a transfer of 4.9, point something million on her account from Pfizer for unspecified purposes. It did, and we have a huge problem with transparency. As with Ms. von der Leyen, the Commission President herself, where we don't know how the um, orders that were placed for these uh, jabs, that is a, a situation that should have forced these people to resign from their offices a long time ago. But obviously, the EU, the EU organs keep violating the most fundamental principles of EU legislation. Well, I have to say, I've, I've always been a lawyer who kept referring to EU legislation in order to point out the need of transparency and all sorts of requirements, fundamental rights, etc. I kept falling back on EU legislation, and that allowed me to be successful in uh, national lawsuits. But what's happening now, what's been done by uh, EU organs for years now has nothing to do at all with EU legislation anymore. It's pure uh, dictatorship. 
It looks like there's other forces in the background playing a role here who uh, use the uh, health as a crowbar um, to do other things than care for health. And uh, things that have nothing to do with these uh, substantial these things, nobody can avoid thinking of that. Uh, the point is that as long as we have a long high number of people who are apparently completely unimpressed by the so-called vaccinations, as long as that's the majority, it's difficult. It's difficult to uh, point this out to the people that there is a problem. There could be a bomb ticking in your bodies. There could be a reactor working similar to a nuclear reactor, highly dangerous. But you have to admit that what uh, we see now Uh, public prosecutor Iliari already say these are sub, uh, experimental substances and uh, that uh, means that the side effects cannot be pushed on the rug anymore and so we have to think on how long is that going to go on or what is the next panic to be brought up if they uh, find out this can't be hidden away anymore. So, how do you assess that we've you've got the same problem in Italy as we have in Germany? The constitutional courts is not manned with the best people, uh, but people who are b belonging to the other side and follow other goals, don't they? Objectives. Indeed. We're very skeptical, of course, here as well. So we try with our in numerous um, lawsuits, we try to get the courts, uh, first instance courts, uh, to uh, determine the material facts. So it would be sufficient here if the courts of law and the public prosecutors, based on the published other uh, um, public documents, and we keep adding new documents nearly on uh, on a daily basis. Uh, for instance, recently I found ministerial documents, uh, a declaration by our health minister, which was issued to the um, health authorities at the beginning of the um, COVID campaign, i.e. in December 2020, where our health minister expressly points out that it is not clear whether these substances can stop infections and that it would only be in the course of uh, events which groups of population these injections would be applied to. At the end of the day, we saw that they were applied to everybody, but this uh, we have this public document, which is, of course, um, interesting from a criminal po uh, law point of view, because we have these highly official statements by our health ministers and our prime ministers. We had two, first Conte and Draghi, who um, had um, fostered this uh, situation in this period, and our uh, president, who kept pointing out um, that who 
will not uh, subject themselves to these uh, to treatment with these substances was irresponsible vis-a-vis others and uh, our taking such uh, documents to the courts and the uh, courts are um, uh, most uh, uh, judges having treated with these um, substances themselves, nearly 99.9% of them, and then get these documents in their hands, and then they are confronted with the fact that uh, they were subjected to the same treatment that uh, some of them might actually uh, feel angry because they were betrayed like the rest of the population. Only with truth and with public proof, which is now really uh, quite oppressive, will we be able to uh, ensure that um, this psychological, if not psychiatric uh, reaction will uh, emerge that people accept this horrible truth because I can imagine that if somebody has already uh, received three jabs of this substance that such a person might find it difficult to accept these facts to read all these documents because it means you have to overcome your own uh, unwillingness to do so, but judges are obliged to do so. Same goes for public prosecutors, but of course they're only human beings. So our hope is that some of them are more courageous and feel their responsibility to put an end to this all even to save themselves and their own families, because at the end of the day, it's also about finding clear wording in um, court wow. rulings. Well, you can only hope for that. We have similar proceedings globally. The only ones that uh, have reacted to government uh, as governments to juridical procedures are the Indians and the Americans. We've got four PCS uh, test um, decisions, Portugal, Austria, uh, Germany and uh, Turkey. They haven't reacted, but the uh, things are coming to a point now and we can say what's going on in Italy especially because this is about the incredible extent to the so-called adverse advections uh, effects, maybe that is the crucial spearhead here. Everything else, unfortunately, as uh, what we've done in good proceedings so far, is not so much uh, severe side effects. So we're going to talk about this. It's great that Leslie Mnuchin, with her health freedoms defense, has uh, abolished the mask mandates. But, and do you see in the reaction of the people, 90% of the people do not wear masks anymore. Uh, so that means the media saying they all want it is wrong. But more 
more important is, and or even as important, uh, is the fact that we have to become aware of the fact that these so-called substances, experimental substances, are neither effective, according to the producers' reports, and in England, as we've seen the facts show, as well as in Israel, um, they're not safe. That's the most important point in it. If it were just ineffective but unharmful, um, that would be okay, but it's not even that. So what's going on in Italy may be the crucial breakthrough story, and we hope that your constitutional court won't uh, keep that up. Otherwise, it'll have effect already now. <laughs> yes, and uh, as far as I know, the fact that in the US, a uh, gene-modifying risk has been identified, we'll see uh, appropriate court rulings, and we know that if something is found there, the fact as such, then it will immediately have enormous impact, which will then have a positive effect on Europe, hopefully, because this is really the worst possible um, scenario um, of um, violation of international law, which is unprecedented. Good. Renata, poor bad news on one side, because more and more bad things are emerging, but a positive development, and we can only hope that uh, judges who have been treated with these substances, if they see this, that they react uh, other than people who are all outside of the frame and uh, still believe that all of this is a vaccination, because a vaccination is characterized by leading to immunity, which is surely not the case here. So, indeed, your point <coughs> um, with that uh, green certificate you can't get anywhere. Uh, there's no discussion on this. How would you want to force people to submit to that if you can see that it's all very risky and does not lead to immunity? Absolutely. And um, we also have uh, a clause in the legal basis that the EU used last year to introduce uh, the Green Pass. Well, I wonder, um, uh, can EU uh, members of the European Parliament, um, they seem to uh, be linguistically challenged. Um, I can show you this clause. This clause already says, in case that it should become apparent that these COVID-19 vaccines have an infectious um, preventing um, effect, then an EU vaccination passport will be introduced. Well, hold on a moment. If we have this clause that one thing will lead to the other, and treatment with this uh, vaccination is uh, considered equivalent with a PCR test or a time-limited uh, recovered status, then I wonder, what are we doing here? If 
we uh, uh, find that uh, this treatment leads to only a limited um, protection of the treated person, then it doesn't make sense to uh, introduce the passport. And at the same time, it is also proof that there is discrimination to the highest degree. Um, it is a violation of uh, free movement of the people who are unvaccinated. So when I read this, it seems that people are in a, unable at this point to understand a simple text. Well, that's nothing new, really. In in the aircraft, I saw an old film with uh, James Stewart, I think from the 30s, where they uh, say that somebody gets into Senate and it is quickly explained to him that he's not more than a puppet. He just has to look important and apart, apart from that, just sign what document is submitted to him. That seems to be a common standards that the people who are up front play no role. Well, they play a role, but only that and not their own. Where was that formulation that you just referred to, just um, in case that uh, shows up to be the case? That is a decision by Council and EU Commission on the introduction of the Green Certificate. I consented after this meeting uh, to Corbyn, and then you can also um, put the link on your website uh, with the uh, attached text, because in itself this is already proof that the green certificate at EU level and then its abusive application at the national level. Without any evidence um, is um, completely stupid and highly discriminatory. Oh dear, Renata, thank you very much. There is going to be, it's going to get tighter, but I think it's very, very important that to, on our way towards the end, and I see it coming, that we keep ourselves up to date and that we really uh, follow the facts. Uh, I thank you very much for the perspective that you give here, and we hope that Sicily will give it to us. Well, from Sicily, um, for uh, all of Italy, uh, we have a association of uh, lawyers fighting against these measures in Italy, and we're in the process of collecting signatures from the general population that we will then send to uh, the governments, to the EU Commission, uh, the members of Parliament, the members of the European Parliament, to all the leading uh, public prosecutors, the presidents of the various courts of justice, with a um, um, request to immediately suspend the license for these uh, vaccines, and at least uh, with an immediate suspension of any vaccination mandates. So we're trying to involve the population now. Because one thing is clear, if we don't take action now, then the fall will be even more absurd than anything we've seen before. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Renata. Right. Goodbye. Okay. Okay.
We will switch now. Uh, James Rogoski, I'm sorry to keep you waiting. Uh, that was a half an hour or so. Um, it's important to understand what's going on in Italy, of course. It is also important to understand what's going on in the United States and in Germany. But as this uh, session is called Undercover or Uncover, um, and as Viviana has mentioned uh, in her introduction at the beginning, that uh, there's things going on at the level of the World Health Organization, which many people are really concerned about because it looks as though they're trying to take away our, uh, behind our backs uh, with their puppets, they're trying to take away our national sovereignties. But that's something that you can tell us something about. Um, you're a researcher, author, um, you're also, also a natural health proponent. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and then tell us about the problem because this is a, an international problem. It's not just with respect to the US or Germany or Europe? Well, first of all, um, can you hear me fine, I hope? Yes, we can hear you very well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, I really want to focus on the message, not the messenger, but I will tell you a little tiny bit. Um, just going back a couple of years, mm -hmm. uh, January 2020, uh, with my background, I came upon the document that many people now know that um, Dr. Fauci was trying to hide in January 2020. Uh, I saw the preprint that was published back then that talked about the uh, sequencing of whatever this is that we're talking about these days. And the report that I saw showed that it had um, furin cleavage sites and HIV um, aspects to it. And I went, oh boy, um, what's going on here? And so I started to pay very, very close attention to what was going on. Subsequently, I um, built a number of websites. Uh, I had six websites actually. Um, got in touch with a number of doctors who were doing alternative uh, care. Um, very early, very early on, got in touch with Jennifer Hibbert, who is now connected with Shabnam, Shabnam Palisa Mohammed with the World Council for Health. We became friends. Uh, I had connections with doctors and, and um, Jennifer was very good at interviewing them. And so, you know, we made connections and so forth. Uh, I was promoting uh, the information about ivermectin long before the FLCCC and others. Uh, I remember being on one of my first interviews, the comments were that I was just an insane person for talking about, you know, something like that. Um, fast forward to uh, January and February of this year, uh, I got a notification from my website hosting company that I had about a day and a half to download all my information because it was all going to go bye-bye because I had broken one of their terms of service agreements. And I asked them what I did that was so wrong and uh, they never gave me an answer. So the answer that I fill in for that is I exceeded their bandwidth for truth and I busted their system. So they took me down. Um, so I'm glad I got a smile out of you. Um, I took it as a reassignment. Uh, I, I have the, the only prayer I ever pray is for guidance, strength, and protection. And uh, I was very surprised at myself. I, you know, a dozen years worth of work. Uh, my original thing that I, I wrote is uh, Your Doctor is a Liar. So anybody can go to yourdoctorisaliar.com and see my early work. I um, landed on Substack. If you're familiar with Substack, I, I believe you are. And um, found a new home and started, you know, 
trying to rebuild some of the things that I had done. And I um, was alerted, you know, from World Council for Health and, and uh, articles that they had. They had an open letter uh, regarding uh, something called a pandemic treaty. And I'm sure you're familiar with um, Astrid Stuckelberger. Uh, yeah. She um, not necessarily testified, but she presented her information on an a, um, assembly with the, the World Council for Health. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think I had seen things. Well, I know I had seen things from Astrid a year ago. I think she was in a video, um, "Planet Lockdown," I believe is what I saw her in. And I, you know, I was very happy to learn, you know, of the things that she had learned about the WHO. And so I went down the pandemic treaty rabbit hole, deep, 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 deep down the rabbit hole. And so one of my early articles um, back in March was the biggest pile of information you will ever see about the pandemic treaty. And so if anyone goes to my Substack, jamesrogeski.substack.com, and you click on the pandemic treaty, uh, it'll take you five minutes just to scroll down to the bottom of the article. I mean, it is just millions of words of stuff put out by the WHO. And I'm here to tell you, don't read it, okay? It is a decoy at this point in time. It is an absolute abomination. It is world government, you know, not on steroids, not on crack cocaine, you know, on crystal meth. It is just an abomination that, you know, is maybe off in our future, but it's a decoy from what we're dealing with right now, which um, after I was digging and digging and digging and digging into the pandemic treaty and, and wrote an article about it, I kept digging. And on March 28th, I, I found an article and in the article, it said, uh, we found we, we have obtained a document and it had a hyperlink. So I clicked on the hyperlink and it was an, it appeared to be an official document, um, but it was on the website, you know, the WordPress website of the person who had written the article. Um, and it was amendments to the international health um, regulations. And I had heard the phrase international health regulations because the WHO had commingled it in with their talk of a coming nebulous, not written to be negotiated pandemic treaty. And this document was not vague or, you know, just a a theory or, or a wish list of, of, you know, what a dictatorial regime that wanted to take over the world would like to have. These were, you know, legalese, crystal clear, you know, amendments to existing regulations. Um, I've sent all of this to you. I don't know how much of it you've had a chance to look at. Um, so I found that out on the 28th of March, even though so you're, you're, uh, just to make this clear, the pandemic treaty itself is a decoy, but the amendments to the international health regulations—that's where the—that's where the beef is. Certainly, at this moment in time, it's a clear and mm -hmm. present danger. If mm -hmm. if you were, you know, metaphorically, you can do this in your mind, or you could do it on a piece of paper. If you if you wrote four quadrants on a piece of paper, and in one quadrant you put the WHO constitution. Um, Astrid Stuckelberger, who I have yet to be able to get connected with, I would love to have a chance to, to speak with her and, you know, give her a briefing on all of this information. 
she she raised you know very valid concerns about the who constitution but unfortunately when people listen to what she has to say about that the the, the listening audience transposes some of the things that she says onto either the pandemic treaty or the international health regulations or the amendments to the international health regulations and so if in your mind you have a quadrant and in one quadrant is the who constitution in another quadrant is the pandemic treaty or the proposed nebulous it's a ghost it's a ghost it doesn't exist it's just meant to get everybody's attention um the other two quadrants are the body of work that is existing international regulation the ihrs or international health regulations that's an 84 page document that's available and we're going to talk about that shortly um and then there's the pro proposed amendments that came from the united states so you know mentally forget about the pandemic treaty forget about the constitution those things are you know real you know that it's it's real information and something to be concerned about but right now we've got a five alarm fire we've got an emergency we've got to have all hands on deck um, i'm a calm detailed you know straightforward guy but you know we got to get our butts in gear and, and get moving because they're they're going to pass this in in may 22nd to 28th when they have the world health uh, assembly and so um if you have the ability at some point um, to screen share, I, I put in the chat um, a website domain that makes it very easy for people to find all of this uh, analysis and research and everything. It's don't you dare dot info. Is it possible for, um, I would prefer that if, if you were in control of the screen share and I guided you, if that's a possibility. Maybe Corbin can do that. Um, I don't know anything I can, about I can, I can, I can do the screen share if, if, if yeah. that's what you want. Um, be happy to do that um, if you want to proceed in that fashion. I, I, I think yeah, it's, let's uh, do that. Let's do okay. that so that we know what we're really talking about. Okay. Um, okay. He said I have screen share, so I have to just open the. Okay. Wonderful. Um, screen share. Okay. So this is the article that I wrote nearly a month ago. Um, and I've been trying to get a hold of you since then. You're a busy man, and I'm just so pleased to be here. Um, okay, I hope that you can see, uh, wake up and smell the burning of our constitution. Yeah, we can okay. see it. Wonderful. Um, this, this is, you can either go to the Substack and, and find this article, or a person can just type in don't you dare.info. Uh, no apostrophe um, and and you so don't you dare dot info. Um, the, there's a video in here that explains it, uh, but you have me in person, so I'll, I'll I'll do the talking rather than the video. Um, currently, I have eight articles that are in this series of things, and this is the fourth one: uh, wake up and smell the burning of the Constitution. I'm about to drop uh, another seven that is, I think, going to make the earth shake a little bit. Um, and here's the executive summary, okay? Most people have never heard of the IHR. Um, I hadn't heard about it really until I started digging into the pandemic treaty. Um, arguably, it, it overrides and supersedes the US Constitution. It actually started back in 1969. It's been amended and amended and amended. And a big rewrite happened in 2005 after anthrax and uh, SARS-CoV-1. And, and, and arguably, it's, a, it's a, an agreement that we've already agreed to and there's a procedure to make amendments, and that's where we are with that. Um, 
On January 18, 2022, the U.S. Uh, Assistant Secretary for the Office of Global Affairs for the Department of Health and Human Services, it's a big mouthful, submitted a document to the WHO, which is the document that I found, um, boy, just one one day, one month and one day ago, um, March 28th is when I found that it existed. Um, they had it very, very, very well hidden. Uh, it is on the agenda to be um, considered and likely to be voted in on May, uh, sometime between May 22nd and 28th. Um, the argument, you know, lawyers can have this argument, but uh, it, it appears that it is not going to be ratified by parliaments around the world or um, by the Senate. It's not going to um, go through that process. It goes through a very different process. And, and so if a majority, you know, uh, half of the 194 countries plus one, so I guess that would be 98 countries vote for it, um, it will be approved as a big fat pile of amend uh, amendments. Um, in addition to that, you know, they have created an intergovernmental negotiating body that's negotiating uh, a, a treaty on pandemic prevention, preparedness and response. But I'm here to tell you, don't pay any attention to, uh, to that, uh, about that until June, because that is just going to suck the energy out of your um, work that, that everybody needs to do. Any, anybody who's talking about anything other than the uh, amendments to the international health regulations that are up for a vote, um, I, I don't have time for it. I'm on a mission and I've dedicated my life at least until, you know, Memorial Day here in the United States. This is a clear present danger. You know, it's it's you have free speech, but we're not supposed to scream fire in a building or, you know, a theater that's not burning. But the but the building is on fire. So I'm screaming fire. OK, time to talk is now. So, Reiner, um, I, I came prepared. Um, I'm talking about a court case. Uh, I know this isn't your grand jury um, and uh, you know, we're not in court, but I will put my hand on a Bible and any other book and, and say, look, um, all of humanity has had their rights abridged because the proper democratic processes whereby any change to international law, you know, should even remotely be considered have just been absolutely abused. Now, you know, at, at the very least, administrative malfeasance on a global phenomenal unbelievable scale i mean this has been hidden a, a, a set of um, documents have been prepared by a cabal of people who remain nameless um, for the most part and they're trying to hide this information until it pops up in the middle of the assembly and you know like they passed the law uh to do the Federal Reserve, you know, on Christmas Eve in the United States back in um, 1913, or, you know, Nancy Pelosi saying, oh, we're gonna pass this law, you get to read it after we pass it. Um, you weren't supposed to see this. I wasn't supposed to find it. We're not supposed to be having this conversation. This was supposed to pop up at the end of May. Boom, boom, you know, all in favor say aye, pass it, it drops back down. They're, they're changing the time period, which had normally been 18 months for sort of a, a, a right of rejection. We'll, we'll get into the details. I can show you all the details. Um, it isn't that governments are approving a treaty like one would normally think, okay? This is backwards. They approve the amendments and then countries will have six months to reject them. 
it's kind of like you got suckered into a, a, a buying a timeshare and you got a three-day you know cooling off period and you go hey um change my mind i went out of the deal right you know you buy something from amazon the shoes don't fit you send it back right 194 countries are sending their delegations they have a chief delegate a deputy delegate a delegate and and whatever size delegation they want to bring with um alternate delegates and advisors the united states brought a total of 30 people to the one in november the special session in november they brought three delegates and 30 extra people because you know that's where all the deals are made 194 countries are going to be sending three delegates they each get you know total one vote per country the who has to my knowledge not translated the english version into the six languages that you know they say they support you know i actually have a wonderful woman um kathleen uh, in ecuador who's translating this into multiple languages just because this is not just the united states this is everybody on earth is about to be bamboozled and their delegates are walking into a trap set by the united states the european union and a handful of countries which is all documented not by me but by their paperwork i'm not going to show you anything that i can't document this is not theory this is not conjecture this is just evidence okay and so what it appears that they're planning is a complete world takeover at the very least in the ability to declare unending states of emergency and i'll stop there and ask if you have any questions but i'm, I'm on fire and i'll just keep going if you want me to yeah i can see that james uh just to um get this in perspective. Um, we have heard about this from uh, uh, Astrid Stokelberger. We've heard about this from um, Dr. Astrid Stokelberger, but also from Dr. S uh, Sylvia Behrendt, both of whom used to work for, or I'm not sure, advise the World Health Organization. Um, it does look as though this is a stealth takeover of our national sovereignties of the 194 member states of the World Health, Health Organization. But what, it, I, and I can see that the process, there's two things to consider. One is the process, which is highly unusual. It's, a, it's an opt-out kind of thing, but that is only after, uh, after the deal is done. <laughs> Very unusual. And the other thing is, what's the substantive, what is in these um, uh, regulations, or rather in the amendments? And the third question is, uh, how come it's the American amendments that make such a big difference? Who's behind this? Well, that leads me into uh, an Abbott and Costello routine. Uh, if you're familiar with their shtick from decades ago, uh, who's on first? I don't know. You know, mm -hmm. on second. Okay. Um, who is behind this? Um, who um, would benefit from it? Who wrote the amendments? You know, who gave them to the United States to then give back to the who? Um, who are the delegates who are going to represent humanity um, before the who? Those are not questions. I believe those are declarative statements. I believe the who and, and their, uh, you know, associates, World Economic Forum and, and IMF and whatever, um, who stands to benefit, you know, always follow the money. Uh, they're the ones who get all of the sovereignty and get all the control. Now, if I may, I'd just like to start by giving you a, a big picture view of the evidence, okay? Um, yeah. Number one, 
is a, a blast from the past. It's a joint resolution signed by Harry Truman when uh, the United States entered uh, into the WHO. Okay, we'll come back to that. I'm just going to, time is precious and there's no way on God's green earth we're going to cover everything that we could cover. So I'm going to try to give you the outline and then we'll get into various details. But there's absolutely no way we're going to cover everything. So I, I understand that. Um, exhibit B is the current international health regulations. Now you notice um, this is on the WHO. You know, this is not me presenting some document that somebody could have altered. It's their document. Um, exhibit C1 and C2, um, two versions, pretty much the same thing. Uh, the only article that I have been able to find prior to my own that had any talk whatsoever of not the pandemic treaty and not the constitution and not any of those decoys, but the actual um, international health, uh, the, amend the proposed amendments to the international health reg uh, regulations, kudos to healthpolicy-watch.news. That's where I found it. And nobody else ever touched, nobody else ever reported anything until I did. Um, exhibit C is the same basic thing. It just has an additional cover letter and slightly different formatting. But I, I was hesitant when I had, you know, the health policy watch version because, you know, I had a document that certainly looked real, but, you know, where'd they get it, right? And when it popped up uh, almost three months later, so it was completely hidden in, in terms of, you know, uh, transparency and disclosure by government agencies. It's, I can't find it on the HHS website. I can't find it on the State Department. I can't find it on the Justice Department. I can't find it on the Geneva Mission. Um, it, it may very well be there hidden because they hide things really well. But when it popped up on April 12th uh, on the WHO website, on their World Health Assembly you know, documents, I'm like, all right, um, that thing I had was real. Time to start really you know, telling people about it because I'm 100% I'm certain it's legitimate evidence. Um, exhibit D. Uh, the Geneva uh, mission, the United States mission to Geneva. And that's not to Switzerland. That's to all the NGOs and, and WHO. You know, th this is where all of the real games get played and the deals get made. Uh, they published a document where uh, very cryptically, okay, um, they said, oh, you know, we're strengthening the international health regulations, but they sure as hell didn't publish the actual amendments. Um, go down a little further. Um, it took a while and, it, and uh, a friend, Aaron Bracken, uh, found um, this provisional agenda buried in uh, the WHO's assembly website. And in that provisional agenda on section 16.2, there's a link to the actual amendments. So that's where we know, okay, look, it's on the agenda. They didn't give a day when it's gonna pop up for a vote. Um, it's a provisional agenda, maybe it'll get detailed. Um, going off on a little bit of a tangent in a deep tunnel in the rabbit hole that I found myself in, um, the Center for Disease Control um, published a document in the Federal Register, and again, you can see govinfo.gov, you know, who.int. These are all official documents. This is concrete evidence. Um, they changed a number of terms, number of words. Uh, I'll give you one little tiny one that they changed. They changed the definition of non-invasive. Um, in the international health regulations, we can show you that, they define the term invasive. 
So all of this double negative stuff will drive you crazy. I like the international health regulations as they currently stand right now. It's a little bit better. Uh, they think that sticking something up your nose is invasive and you're not, you know, nobody's allowed to do that unless you say it's okay. Um, the U.S. Um, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, changed that definition in a negative, double negative sort of way. Non-invasive, they carved out an exception and essentially the net result is in the United States, as far as the United States is concerned, you've got regulatory cover if you want to stick something up somebody's nose against their will. Uh, now getting into trying to find, and, and this is the, the occult hidden information in addition to the amendments being hidden. Uh, nobody that I know, well, I take that back, one woman in, in Ecuador, Shiloh, uh, wonderful activist down in Ecuador, and oh, we got to talk about what's going on in Ecuador because it is insane and there's no news about it. But um, she believes that she has discovered who the delegates in Ecuador will be, but I don't believe she found that out from uh, a published document. To my knowledge, with all the people I've talked to around the world, no one has the foggiest idea who is scheduled to attend the World Health Assembly as the delegate from each of 194 countries. Now, I have been able to find delegates from previous years, okay? If you notice, um, uh, WHA 74, WHA 73, WHA 72, uh, they published after the fact the people who did attend, and I'm okay with that. You know, they have to, they, they, they can't publish who might attend. You know, people show up, they get credentialed, you know, they get allowed into the building, and, and then once the um, assembly starts, you know, they can start compiling, you know, who showed up. And so when I went to um, uh, this link right here, it comes up file not found, but I'm quite confident that's that's where the list will be after the damn assembly's over. A lot of good that does me. I want to talk to my delegate right now. And it, it's likely that the delegate from the U.S. will be uh, Javier Becerra, our uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services. It's likely that our delegate will be um, Lois Pace, who is the person who put her name on the document that submitted the amendments. Uh, Mr. Benjamin Moling was the deputy chief delegate I'm not 100% sure if he's going to be the deputy chief delegate this time. That information is absolutely unavailable. Okay. Um, I do have a list of delegates who attended the special session in November. I have a list of uh, delegates who attended the uh, executive board meeting in January, but I will be darned. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I think this is called discovery. I sure would like to know who the heck the list of delegates are going to be to represent me and, you know, everyone else in the world when they show up in uh, at the end of May. Now, I'm going to go right straight to the heart of the matter. Um, I'm going to just go show you the needle in the haystack that I found. Um, this is the official document that's on the WHO's website. Um, and back on May 28th, when I found this on a, on a different website, um, because it was not yet up uh, on the WHO's website, uh, this is from April 12th. This is the first time that the World Health Organization made this public. It's the first time, as far as I can tell, anybody officially made these proposed um, proposal for amendments to the IHRs. So April 12th, um, that's three, three, is that Leslie? No. Um, hi. Um, that's the first time that it was 
it, it, it was supposed to see the light of day. Okay. Um, one cover page, another cover page. This is basically two days after um, Lois Pace presented this to uh, the WHO. They forwarded it to the 193 other nations just in the nick of time because there's a four month deadline prior to the assembly, which is starting on the 22nd. So they made it with a couple of days to spare. You can't just drop something in the middle of the assembly and expect people to understand what you're talking about. Everyone is supposedly looking at this for four months. Okay. Well, a couple of days later, 40 countries um, uh, uh, showed their support uh, for these amendments, which tells me, you know, they were involved in crafting them. Uh, now, I don't have proof of that, but boy, they sure do read fast. And, you know, for them to approve it and go through some kind of administrative protocol to consider uh, have, have, um, public uh, comment, ha have their Senate or Parliament weigh in on it. I, I don't know how that happens in a couple of days. So, you know, I'm suspecting that, you know, they knew what was coming. And so getting into the amendments, uh, uh, this is the uh, document from uh, Lois Pace on uh, January 18th. Uh, Lois Pace um, submitted the IHR amendments. So it came from the United States, but it appears to have come really from a group of countries working together uh, to craft some very, very crafty legal language. Um, submission of the United States proposed amendments. Um, there's 13 articles. You know, there's only one pile of words here. It's just one document, but there's 13 articles that are being amended. And the big ones are number 12 and number 59. They're all horrible. Uh, Shabnam uh, Playsa Muhammad, who I, I know you interviewed, is uh, on the steering committee of the International, um, I'm sorry, the World Council for Health. And, and her, um, she's the um, chair of their law and activism uh, committee. And yesterday, all of us went through this, you know, with a fine tooth comb, line by line by line. Um, everybody had uh, built on, on my analysis that I did you know, a month ago, and they each took a couple of sections and, you know, took a, a week or however long they took to, to dig into it. And we spent four hours yesterday um, trying not to be so disgusted that we barfed all over you know, our, our Zoom meeting because there is not a single word in here that isn't just absolutely pure evil, in my opinion, okay? Um, number 12, uh, article number 12 is the core. I mean, it's all horrible, but this is the, the most horrible. Article 12 used to say, um, just, oh, I'm sorry, you know what? My bad, I'm going back up here. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with these conventions, but your, your audience needs to know that the proposed new text has bold and underlined okay. um, font and mm -hmm. existing text, a text that is going to be deleted, will see the strike through, yeah. okay? Yeah. Any common text is the existing regulations. All right, so article 12, I, I literally, Reiner, when I saw this big fat pile of words and I saw this, okay, um, when the light bulb goes off, you'll be horrified. Mm -hmm. It's It literally looks like a needle in a haystack with the line through it, okay? Currently, those words are the regulations, okay? Is everybody clear that mm. before these amendments, those words are what is the deal. And so what it means is that the director general has to get the agreement of the sovereign nation before they declare 
a public health emergency of international concern, PHEIC or FAKE. Okay, so the Director General, let's use an example, um, China, Wuhan, 2020, January, uh, something's going on, people are being welded into their homes and dropping on the street and screaming and, you know, all that kind of craziness. WHO gets wind of what's going on, they go to Wuhan, and China tells them, go shove it, get out of here. You know, we got a few things we got to hide, maybe, before we want to talk to you, come back later, we'll let you know when you can come back in. They come back in a couple of days, a week later, China, you know, agreed. Yeah, okay, we got a problem, okay? Currently, the WHO does not have the authority to override a sovereign country's decision to tell them to just shove off, okay? Well, they don't like that. They want to get rid of that limitation. And so all of this stuff has double negatives in it. That's a limitation on the power of the director general and the WHO, they have to get the agreement um, of the sovereign nation. Well, if you amend that and you remove a limitation on power, that's essentially transferring power. The, all of these words, you know, at, at the end of our four hour session yesterday with the um, Law and Activism Committee at the World Council for Health, um, The gist of all of this is all of these words are meant to confuse because you miss the simple fact that this creates an absolute single dictator that the director general can declare an emergency anytime he wants. Now, there's all kinds of other words all throughout this. You know, this is a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo. James, I can see um, that. I can see that. Um, I, this is the gist of the matter. And you're saying that all of this. Um, this is just an example, right? But it's probably the most important example because this makes it possible for the director general, who in my view is nothing but a puppet for those who are behind him pulling his strings, that the director general will be able to declare a public health emergency all by himself, except that he has to confer with the um, uh, emergency committee, right? Whoever that is. Um, may confer. May, okay, may. And decision um and 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 so it's not like um it says that he must you know like the, like the fda confers with their advisory committees yeah 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 whatever thank you very much i'm going to do what i want to do anyways okay it's it's not like you have to get the advice and consent of the senate and if they say no then it's no okay and so uh when i saw that i i knew that i found something very important well, you know that for a very long time, um, both we at the um, Corona Investigative Committee and, of course, uh, Dr. Wolfgang Wodak and now many, many other people have, um, have believed that we desperately need to get out of these international global organizations, including this one here because it's totally out of control. As you're showing us right now, they're <laughs> this is like a dystopian James Bond movie. They're trying to take over the world without us even knowing about it. Um, so we have to get out of these systems, out of these global systems. We have to set up our own regional systems that are tailor-made. This system is, despite everything that they're trying to do now, uh, this system is bound to collapse. It's, it's collapsing right now. So we 
I know it. And you know why I don't, I'm not really concerned. I realize there's a lot of reason to be concerned, but I'm not really concerned because I think in the end, and the end is coming soon, we will all disconnect from all of this and will not have anything to do with this, neither with the people who are behind this nor with this. But at the moment, you're absolutely right to uh, point this out to all of us because you, we have to, in order to be able to disconnect, we have to first understand how evil these people really are, how evil these institutions really are. And you're making this very clear here. Um, is there, um, what is the, the idea behind this is obviously that they're trying to gain complete control so that they will be able to announce a public health emergency of international concern, fake, <laughs> it's in your face, you know? So that they'll be able to, to declare such an emergency whenever they like, regardless of whether there is an emergency or not. I mean, that's what we're seeing right now. They didn't have cases, so they created them, and then they declared this public health emergency of international concern. So that is, is that the overriding, is that the theme of all of this, that through the um, fake as a, as a crowbar, they will be able to... Uh, from the, uh, or through the World Health Organization, they'll be able to act as dictators, telling each and every one of the member states, the 194 member states, uh, what to do whenever they like. May I, may I have your permission to agree with you absolutely, totally, and completely? <laughs> Whoa. Um, uh, um, I don't know what happened to my screen share. Uh, where did it go? So I was gonna show you. Uh, Okay, that's that's weird. My screen share just disappeared. Um, this is my signature on every article that I write. Mm -hmm. The old system is crumbling and we must build its replacement quickly. If you're fed up with the government, hospital, medical, pharmaceutical, media, media, industrial complex, and would like to help build a holistic alternative to the WHO, then feel free to contact me directly anytime. Now, here's where people think I'm crazy. All right, please call me. My number is 310-619-3055. Reiner, I can't tell you how many absolutely wonderful human beings have reached out and contacted me, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm in this, uh, my girlfriend and I, she's, she's wonderful, she's by my side. A couple of weeks ago when you know all of this became clear, uh, we just said, okay, life is on hold because I will not be able to live with myself unless I dedicate you know everything I have. I've, I've been on meetings at four in the morning uh, with people in Malaysia. There's a wonderful group in Malaysia that are just, you know, up in arms about this. Um, I, I mentioned people in Ecuador, uh, folks in in, yes. uh, in, mm -hmm. in Europe, and, and obviously Shabnam in South Africa. Uh, this isn't just the United States. We're the cause of this. We're yeah. the we're the ones who are, you know, putting this in. Uh, I don't know how much time we have left uh, i'll try to gauge the importance of what time we spend uh because i'll be here for leslie, a leslie is under under time pressure um uh, i'd be happy to give leslie the floor uh you know there is just tell me how much time i have left and, and i'll give you the best content for whatever time allows um leslie um your the your decision is so important and i don't want to miss any of that um can we do it in such a way that you're going to go first and then uh, James will uh, finish up with um, his presentation? Right, right. I, I do have commitments off into the future. Oh, um, I'll just I'll just wrap it up and, you know, um, hopefully, okay. um, hopefully we won't 
drop it. Hopefully we'll pick it back up at some point in the future. We will, we will, um, because as uh, everyone understands this is really, really important. This is okay. pure dictatorship if, coming if, through the back door. If, if I may do five minutes and then um, we'll wrap sure, it up. go ahead. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, Leslie. Um, and congratulations on, you know, a victory. Um, uh, okay, so this, I, um, I got the opportunity to explain what I'm about to explain to a former congressperson. And when the light bulb went off, she absolutely screamed because she saw the ramifications of it. So that'll be the, that'll be the punchline and the ending to this wonderful um, time here. Um, this is uh, the Centers for Disease Control published their final rule on um, quarantines and things like that. Okay, government document. This is a uh, federal register document and it's big old pile of words. And if you go down, um, see where we are here, um, on page 6969, okay, um, it's page 80 in the PDF, but it's page 6969 in the Federal Register. On the bottom right-hand corner, um, they are playing uh, 1984 Newspeak, uh, redefining words, new definition for a public health emergency in the United States, okay? Uh, the United States has national emergencies declared by the president. Uh, Congress is supposed to vote twice a year by law. They're supposed to vote on a, a joint resolution to tell the president to end or continue the national emergency. And they just failed miserably for two years. There's 40 or so national emergencies that are running in the United States at any given moment. And they're supposed to vote every six months to keep them or leave them. And they just, they just don't, they should all be kicked out of office. Um, the public health emergency though is worse because once the Secretary of Health and Human Services says, oh, we've got a public health emergency, there is nothing in the law that I've been able to find to get that to stop. It's just dictatorial control for our Secretary of Health and Human Services, um, Javier Becerra. So the fifth version or the fifth, uh, um, I hope you can see that. I've got my uh, other screen here. Number, number five. Um, any communicable disease event for which the Director General of the WHO under these articles um, has issued temporary or standing recommendations for purposes of preventing or promptly detecting the occurrence or occurrence of a communicable disease gives the Secretary of Health and Human Services um, regulatory cover. This is not law, this is just regulatory cover. He could say, oh, well, you know, Tedros made a recommendation, so we have an emergency. Now, if this isn't void for vagueness, I don't know what is. It's like if Tedros says, "Well, somebody sneezed, and we got to, you know, we got to test the sewage in the Congo, right?" Um, that's regulatory cover for the Secretary of Health and Human Services to declare in the United States in lockstep. Uh, if you know what I mean by lockstep, and I'm sure you do. Um, uh, you know, world world emergency all day, every day, you know, it's like Oprah Winfrey, you get an emergency and you get an emergency. Everybody has an emergency. There's one more thing here that I'll wrap it up with. Um, 
and then I'll give you the punchline and um, Leslie can share her, share her wonderful victory. Um, they redefined the term non-invasive. And a lot of double negatives. Um, we don't have time to go back into the international health regulations where they define invasive. I actually prefer the definition in the international health regulations. It suits me just fine. They say that sticking something up your nose is invasive and you have to give permission before anybody can do it. You know, that's, that's what it ought to be. Well, when somebody reads this and sits with it for a while and reads the other one, you realize that they carved out an exception for the ear, nose, and mouth, okay? So according to the United States, I've got less bodily autonomy based on the CDC's regulations than I have bodily autonomy under the international health regulations. And here comes the punchline. Um, you want to take a guess as to what day this got dropped into the uh, federal register? Does that mean anything to you, anybody? January 19th, 2017, yeah. last full day, last full day of the Obama administration, the day before Trump was dropped in, was inaugurated into office. They made it possible for the PCR swab testing to have regulatory cover the day before Obama left office. Wow. And, That's a very um, interesting coincidence. Oh, coincidence? I beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your time, for your time, writer. I hope we're in touch some more. Um, I, I have seven more articles that I'm about to drop. Um, I'm also an activist, and by giving my phone number, you know, um, hopefully some people will take action. Uh, at some point, maybe we'll talk again uh, about you know where we go from here. But let me give the floor to Leslie, um, and, and you know, please do get back in touch with me. Um, I hope to do this. We could be here for. You know, we could be for as, as long as you want. I'm at your service. If, if I can give you any other information, um, uh, just tell me how I can, you know, uh, work with you on, on any of this. It's uh, it, it's my life, you know, un, until we, we stop this because, you know, you, this, um, is, this, is, you, this is this is the great reset. This document this is, is, is yes. the great reset. Absolutely. This is, you know, I realized this. I didn't have all of these details, of course, but I realized this when I first read about the lockstep approach and when I saw what happened after they declared the public health emergency of international concern this time around. Of course, they changed um, the definition of what a pandemic is. They changed pretty much everything, herd immunity, and now they're changing uh, non-invasive treatments so that, ah, it's very, very obvious. Again, the only way out of this is to disconnect, set up our own system, let them go to hell. That's what they're doing right now. Yeah, and they're, trying, and, they're, and they're trying to drag us into their hell. So thank yeah. you so much for your time. Um, yes, Leslie. James, I just wanna say, yes, Reiner, you're right. We have to disconnect, but there are also avenues in the legal system because yes. those are very clear rifle yeah. shot violations of federal law, the Administrative Procedure Act, and other safeguards that we have against tyranny in this country. And those are not that hard to challenge. So I just texted James <laughs> saying, <laughs> I talk to you next week. I want to get our legal team on some of the things that you just mentioned, ASAP. Yeah, I mean, you know, no Russians have been involved in the making of this production. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's evidence, okay? Yeah. Um, not conjecture, 
Um, the thing that people should be really pissed about is who are our delegates? It's, it's, it's a cult. It's hidden. We don't know who's going to go and vote. And I'm taking the kind approach. I would love to tell my delegates what I know because they might not know it. I, I doubt that the delegates around the world, because they haven't translated into many languages, and, and the 194 countries' delegations are unaware that they're being, that they're walking into a trap to be tricked into. And I think if we could just raise awareness, you know, maybe we get uh, a majority to say no. Yeah. Well, we're working on that. Um, unfortunately, I have to butt in, James. I'm sorry, but I really I have another. Very, I'm prepared. Very I'm urgent... prepared to say. I'm prepared to say goodbye and thank you. Um, we'll be in touch, but, James. Um, but, this is this. I would qualify this as clear and convincing evidence. Thank you very much. Um, uh, we'll be in touch. I hope, Leslie. Congratulations. Thank you so much, James. Take care, James. Bye. Hey. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning, Reiner. Good morning, Vivian. Hello there. How are you both? Well, again, under the, I always have to say under the circumstances, I'm doing fine. Um, there's lots of concern of this going off the rails. It, some people think it has already gone off the rails. I don't think so. Um, I think we are, we in the resistance, as you may call this, um, we're on a good track. But um, it is important for us to see the light at the end of the tunnel because many of us are really exhausted. I know that from telling, uh, from talking to these people. And that's why it's so important to every once in a while get some really good piece of news. And this is one, your decision, the one that your um, Health Freedom Defense Fund won because it immediately showed what the people really think about this. In this country, I think 90% of the people are not in line with the government as far as these measures are concerned. But uh, let us know what happened. What, what, what about this decision? I read it, of course. I have to read something to you. Mm -hmm. Where did they, who sent it to me? Somebody texted me and said that they flew home from somewhere and not a single person on the plane was wearing a mask, not one. Now that is an extraordinary occurrence because, let me see if it's this one. Um, oh, I know where it is. Um, a friend said that she just flew home from seeing her daughter who's in Virginia in college on two flights and there was not one single person wearing a mask. Um, this is extraordinary, okay? Because, so first of all, let me just tell everybody what happened. Monday, so about 12, what is it, 11, 12 days ago, Monday, April 18th, we won our lawsuit against the federal government and, and the judge struck down, vacated the CDC's mask mandate for all um, conveyances, which means airplanes and buses and things like this. Also terminals, um, you know, so you can't in the in the airports, in bus terminals, um, rail stations, everywhere, and also any transportation service that took CARES Act funds. So any of the federal COVID relief funds, those no longer have to uh, implement mask mandates when for passengers who are traveling on them. So this had an impact on you know hundreds of millions of people in one fell swoop. She didn't just 
um, you know, she didn't just say she agreed with us. She actually struck down the CDC's order. And she did so in a very, very meticulous, well-reasoned manner. She ruled, well, let me say this. First of all, do you want me to say anything else in background or is that clear enough? I just don't know if you want me to like, we have a little bit of a time constraint, so I don't want to go on too much. And I don't know if you want to ask questions or anything, but that's basically the background, right? That we filed a lawsuit, and just so everyone knows, we filed this lawsuit in July of 2021, but the legal system is unbelievably slow. It takes so long. We didn't file a preliminary injunction at the time because we didn't feel it was prudent. They're very, very difficult to get. At that time, people were still fairly frightened and no preliminary injunctions relating to COVID measures had been granted as far as I remember. And, Neither in Germany. Yeah, I don't think it had happened anywhere, right? Yeah. And so um, it wasn't until the fall that we started to see some challenges um, against the PCR tests prevail. Am I not correct in that? Mm -hmm. Isn't that right, you guys? In so, um, the uh, PCR test, the first PCR test cases uh, were one, the first one in, in um, in uh, in Portugal, I think was one uh, towards the end of 2020. Okay, so that's different. But in the United States, there were no injunctions. And a preliminary yeah. injunction means that the judge is intervening and saying, we are going to stop, I'm going to stop this policy until we can review it, until we hear the case on the merits. Now, you know, that's a, a big step. And no, no judges had done that at this point in the United States. And there had been challenges, but to my knowledge, I, I don't remember anything like that. And it wasn't really until probably late November or early December that a lot of the attorneys general from the states got involved and started filing against vaccine mandates. And they won some injunctions, okay? But at this point in July of 2021, the tide is very, very much against us. We felt the prudent thing to do was to have this reviewed by a judge um, you know, work its way through the courts in the normal process and have her rule on the statutory claims that we made. So we made several statutory claims. First of all, we said that the statute under which CDC claimed authority to implement a mask mandate didn't grant them that authority. It's called the Public Health Service Act of 1944. And I forget the section, um, but it, it is supposed to write, to empower CDC to, um, regulate animals and things that are brought into this country that might be carrying some kind of a disease or something like that. So they could be sanitized, treated, things like this. Okay. It's also for general sanitation, you know, removal of garbage and sewage and things from the streets and making sure that there's a generally a clean environment. There's never ever been an instance where this statute has been construed to mean that the CDC can force you to wear a medical device. And what really amounts to a article of clothing because we know that these masks don't do what they're purported to do. So the first thing that we argued was that, that the CDC didn't have this statutory authority and the judge agreed with us. Secondly, we argued that even if they did have the authority that they claimed. They didn't follow the proper procedure to notify the public of this, um, of this proposed rule and to take public comment. So under the Administrative Procedure Act, all federal agencies have to 
notify the public and take public comment whenever they're going to initiate a rule. And rules, once passed, actually have the full force and effect of the law. So they are an important thing. In the United States, we're supposed to have three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, so the executive is the president, the legislative is the Congress, and then the judicial, which is all the courts. And what's happened since this, since basically the last century, 75 to 80 years, really since the Roosevelt administration, um, is that there has been this new branch of government developed called the administrative branch. And it's not really a branch, but it's called the administrative state, I should say, to correct myself. And this administrative state has this tremendous power if they follow the rules, but also they're not accountable to anyone or elected. And so it's actually very problematic. And this lawsuit was a, was a big blow to them, to the administrative state. But I'll go into that a little bit more in a second. So the next thing that we argued, well, first we, we argued that they didn't follow the rules. So to notify the public or to receive public comment, but also they didn't properly justify or explain the justification for their mandate. Then the last thing that we argued was that it's arbitrary and capricious. And we said this because, you know, they said, well, if you're under two, you don't have to um, wear a mask, but they didn't have any science to substantiate that that was safer than someone at three or six or 30 not wearing a mask, right? So it was just arbitrary and the judge agreed on all of these things. And that's really important because the judge agreed with everything that we argued, but she also went into just great detail to explain why. She particularly um, expounded on the, the Public Health Service Act which in which the CDC is granted authority to, as I mentioned, um, safeguard public health with respect to things coming into the country, okay? Now that originally was for someone who's bringing turtles into the country and they had salmonella or something. And so they used it to then control um, these animals from coming in, okay? That's what it was originally implemented or, or that's one of the first ways that it was used. And that illustrates the kind of um, uh, intended use. But what's happening is that now, um, you know, you can understand why they would want to sanitize a creature like that, or perhaps prohibit them from coming in if they were carrying something that might affect other animals. But nowhere does it say that they can invade the, the individual liberty of Americans. And on top of that, a mask, as the judge wrote, doesn't sanitize anything, right? It's not sanitizing you. It's not doing anything. There are those who argue that it's actually preventing the spread of disease, but that's not agreed by the FDA. All masks, almost all masks in the United States are um, authorized under the emergency use authorization under the PREP Act. And as such, they carry with them the right to accept or refuse. And FDA explicitly says that all masks are not to be marketed or sold as preventing bacterial or viral infection or transmission. Now, why would they say that unless they believe that they didn't have any impact, right? So they can't be marketed or construed as pre pre preventing viruses or 
bacterial infection or anything. And it's because for over a century, we've known that they actually don't work in this in the public setting. They I don't think, even you know, I, I think if I read this correctly, the only thing that they tried to hide behind without giving any eel, uh, any real evidence is um, public health. It furthers public health. That's nothing. But how does it further further public health? And if yeah. you can sit in the restaurant in the um, in the airport, but five feet away and maskless, right? Because you can sit in the airport eating maskless, but five or six feet away, you know, two meters, you're ordering, but you have to be in a mask, and they are they are directed to refuse to serve you if you're not wearing a mask. So I can go and this just happened to me. Well, you have to wear a mask. I'm not allowed to serve you if you're not wearing a mask. And I'm like, but I can sit right there, you know, and and your co-workers are coming out of the kitchen and they've got their masks down here. They're not wearing their masks or they don't even have a mask at all. And, you know, it's really interesting to watch how these um, these powers, right, <laughs> supposed powers affect human nature um, in negative and positive ways. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, the absurdity of it all right and that we're supposed to wear them on airplanes and yet the airline um executives have been beseeching the cdc now for weeks had been for the preceding month before this all happened to rescind the mask mandate they have implemented enhanced air filtration systems and all of those sorts of things on their aircraft and they argue that it's the safest place to be so it's even more ridiculous, essentially. So anyway, we filed this lawsuit in July of 2021, and we finally got the ruling April 18th, and it was met with literally rapturous joy across the country for the most part. Um, there were uh, pilots announcing mid-flight that people didn't have to wear their masks anymore and people were taking them off. The flight attendants were dancing in the aisles. Yeah. There were flight attendants singing and walking down the aisles carrying garbage bags for people to throw their masks away. And like this one guy who was like, take off your mask. You know, we just sang it the whole way. It was, I mean, just brilliant, right? Um, to me, the most important thing of my, my most important takeaway from the entire experience and this win is that there is hope. I hear so many people say that all the judges are corrupt, that everything's hopeless, that we'll never win a lawsuit. And that's not true. There are good people everywhere. I think people feel liberated from it and they feel inspired. And I think it's lit a bit of a, you know, it's, it's put some wind back in the sails of the liberty movement in this country and I think around the world because I've heard that it's being reported in France and India and you know everywhere Britain it's been reported far flung places around the world that this has happened and so I really and, and from all the messages that I'm getting I I do believe that it's been really inspiring and and um, given some hope back to people that we still do have the potential to change things and I think that's really true. I think that's very important. It's a very important step forward. I was wondering, is there anything known about this specific judge and how has she been, maybe after this ruling, has been attacked or I don't know what, what's happened to her? Is there anything known? Oh, Vivian, it has been, been incredible what's happened to this woman. Um, she is a, a brave young woman, is all I can say. I think she's only about 35 or 36 years old. And so she has been attacked for being too young 
inexperienced and too pretty. <laughs> yes. And I think it's really, it, it, it's a perfect illustration of the hypocrisy of the American media and mainstream media in general, because the media rightly condemned then candidate Donald J. Trump when he criticized the appearance of his female opponents when he was running for election in 2016. They condemned him for it, and they should have, because it's entirely inappropriate, and it has no place anywhere, right? It doesn't belong anywhere, criticizing someone's appearance. Yeah. What's interesting is that now they seem to have unbelievable collective amnesia about the whole, um, you know, what Donald Trump did and their criticism of him, because they are literally lawyers, journalists are calling her too pretty. And what's really interesting is I don't remember all the details. You'd have to ask one of my attorneys um, about this. But from what I understand, Elena Kagan, who sits on the Supreme Court now, had never tried a case before she was appointed to the bench. So she had different kind of experience, but that doesn't mean that she's not a good judge, right? You don't have to have trial court experience to be a good judge. But anyway, they didn't didn't complain at all when that happened, when Elena Kagan, one of their side, was um, was um, you know appointed, but they are up in arms about Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell. Mizell, I think is how you say it. And it's for the most absurd reasons. The truth is that she's obviously very brave. Yes, she was appointed by Donald Trump. She was his last appointee before he left office. And she is young, but she's very experienced. She clerked for Clarence Thomas, who's on the Supreme Court. Um, she, but they don't like the fact that she clerked for him because he's a conservative judge. They don't like the fact that she is has some affiliation with the Federalist Society, which is a um, conservative group. And they obviously, they must think that their judges are biased because if they, if if Catherine Mazel can't be unbiased, then neither than theirs, neither can theirs, right? You can't have it both ways. That if it's a more conservative leaning judge, that she's biased. But if it's a liberal judge, then he or she are not biased. And it's just, it's absurd. It's patently absurd. But this is what has become of American politics. It's literally a circus. Yes, we saw a short video clip with uh, Fauci explaining in effect that he thinks the CDC is above the law because he said he couldn't understand why she's ruling on this. It is so obvious that this is up to the CDC. No, no one is above the law. No. So, I mean, this is so important. So let me tell you what happened last week. Um, <laughs> so Fauci has made this past week, I'd say in the last seven days, he's made several conflicting statements. First of all, he did make that statement. He actually said, we can't have judges overruling public health authorities. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think you exactly understand the way that our system of governance works, Dr. Fauci, because that's exactly what they should be doing when they assert power that they don't have, right? Power and authority. That is precisely why this is called checks and balances. <laughs> Exactly. That's the whole point of three three branches of government. But and this is why I'm saying the administrative state is out of control. So yeah. what happened was the ruling was delivered um, in the morning or midday Eastern time on Monday, April 18th. And there was nothing out of the Department of Justice, the DOJ, 
I think, I can't remember, I'm sorry, it's been such a blur. It was either that evening, but I think actually it was rather the next evening. I don't think it came out until Tuesday evening. And they said something, oh no, I think it was that evening. They said that DOJ, which is for all of the um, non-Americans, the Department of Justice is essentially the highest law enforcement group in the agency in the United States. And they're supposed to be dealing with matters of law and enforcement of law not following what a public agency does. And they came out and they said, well, you know, we disagree with the ruling, but um, we'll, we'll wait and see what CDC wants to do about this. We'll leave it up to CDC's, we'll wait and see what CDC's assessment of the situation is. Now, if there's an emergency, <laughs> do you have, time to wait? Should you just be waiting to see what the assessment of the situation is? Or would you be acting immediately? So that looked really bad, um, you know, from a, an optics standpoint. But then there was the other piece, which is that if you don't act within a certain window, then you can't actually request from an appeals court um, injunctive relief, meaning some kind of quick stay of the judgment. So they failed to do that as well. And then they came out another day later, and they said, I'm pretty sure that it was Tuesday night that they issued that statement. And then Wednesday, they issued a new statement saying, um, yeah, we are going to appeal. And we're going to appeal because we want to ensure that CDC retains authority for when this happens again. So it was all about retaining administrative state authority. That's the reason they're going to challenge it, not whether it's actually statutorily consistent or justified. And then what happened was Fauci came out the next, no, that, that Fauci came out this week then and said that the pandemic phase is over. Now, if the pandemic phase is over, well, I guess we don't have an emergency, do we? So what does that do to all the emergency powers that they're claiming? And then he came back the next day and he's like, no, 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 I didn't say that the, uh, uh, I just said the pandemic phase, but we're still in the pandemic. So very, very conflicting. There's been all of this flip-flopping out of the um, uh, leadership. And we understand that they actually, that the government, that the administration was not really aware that our lawsuit was in the works. <laughs> and that there was going to be a ruling soon. And so it's actually been kind of humorous to watch this all play out because there's been all of this flip-flopping and changing. And I think something that's important for people to understand is that if, if the if DOJ does appeal, it's going to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals already struck down a CDC order many months ago. The CDC had issued an order stating that all passengers boarding cruise lines departing Florida had to be vaccinated. And the 11th Circuit Court, the, the state of Florida sued, and the it went to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals said CDC has exceeded its statutory authority. And CDC claimed that statutory authority under the very same statute that it claims authority to do the mask mandate. So that does not bode well for CDC. On top of that, there's been a case that went to the Supreme Court, which um, in which CDC claimed under the same statute to have the authority to pause 
evictions. So they, they implemented an eviction moratorium, and this was for tenants who were unable to pay their landlords the rent. And this was during the peak of the crisis. And so the CDC issued this moratorium and then landlords sued because, you know, they of course couldn't get their rent <laughs> and they couldn't evict people. And this, it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court struck down CDC's order saying it didn't have statutory authority. So the Department of Justice has an uphill battle given these two recent precedents under this very same statute. But they've also got a problem in that the public sentiment has clearly shifted. Like I mentioned that this friend of mine, you know, she flew home and not a single person on the plane was wearing masks. Now, I have another friend who was on a flight in the last week, and she said that about 30 percent, 25 or 30 percent of people were wearing masks. Um, the photos I've seen mostly, it's been two or three people on the on the planes. But the point is that they are in this kind of rock between a rock and a hard place because they want to, you know, grab back, claw back the statutory authority that they've claimed that they have without upsetting the public. Right. And the public sentiment has clearly shifted against them. I mean, I think conservatively, 70 to 75 percent of Americans are done with the masks and they can see the, ludi the, the, the ludicrousness of having a mask on an airplane, but not in all the other places that they're going. And so they're in a really, really difficult position. But like it's once this, I, I would like to note, so in, in case they like would bring out, they bring out like an, a new mask mandate, would that be affected by this ruling so that it's immediately like illegal or would you need to um, kind of, um, you know, uh, um, take that to court again? So Vivian, what the judge ruled, she actually did what's called vacating the order. She struck it down as illegal. She stopped it immediately, mm -hmm. okay? And the government um, ordered TSA to stop enforcing the mask mandate within hours of the judgment. They had to do that, okay? What they're trying now to do is to somehow finagle orchestrate a situation such that they can claim that they do have the statutory authority for another um, another um, emergency. But we will challenge that and we'll take it all the way to the Supreme Court if they try that. And that's, but I think that's what's going on. That said, right now, they couldn't issue a mask mandate. So mm -hmm. they could um, do what's called notification of the public, noticing the public. They could tell the public that we're going to implement a mask mandate that we want to do that and then they would have to have a certain number of weeks effort i don't i can't remember what the apa requires the administrative procedure act if it's 30 or 60 or 90 days but they would have to you know notify days. the public what's that 30 days okay. I, and then, I read that in the ruling mm -hmm. okay and then they would have to take um public comment for a period of time as well and then they would have to consider that and then they could issue a new order so they can fix the procedural problems they yeah. can't fix the arbitrary and capricious problem because they don't have the science to justify. They they didn't properly. They actually submitted 400 pages of science <laughs> that, that supposedly supported their their mandate. 
but not a single randomized controlled trial supporting their mandate. Not a single one. And here's the thing. In May of 2020, CDC published its own research, a meta review of 14 randomized controlled trials evaluating the impact of masking, enhanced hygiene, so hand washing, and sanitizing the environment like surfaces and things like that. And those randomized, that meta review of 14 randomized controlled trials, the gold standard in, in research, found that there was no impact, <laughs> negligible impact of any of the measures. So why had they disregarded their own research, literally published in May of 2020, and not included that in their 400-page dossier? Very, very interesting. Was published? This was published in 2020 already? May of 2020, CDC wow. published this meta review. I can send you the link, Reiner. Is that, so we is, would was need, that sorry. somehow done in cooperation with John Ioannidis, or did he do it separately? Because he came to the very same conclusion, saying explicitly saying lockdowns, for example, not only don't do anything, but they only do harm. This did not evaluate lockdowns. It evaluated um, masking, okay. hand washing, and environment. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it, but it also referenced all of the what are called mechanistic studies. So these mechanistic studies, they started manufacturing mechanistic studies. And what are mechanistic studies? It's when you shoot spittle or something out of a gun at a piece of fabric and you say, hey, wow, it stopped the droplets, right? It stopped the mucus. That is what they are claiming is evidence that masks work. But of course, anything that's aerosolized is not going to be stopped by a mask, even if the droplets are stopped. You know, as many people have said, trying to stop a, um, uh, some kind of virus, viral spread of something that's so tiny is like stop, trying to stop a mosquito with a chain link fence, right? It's, it's patently absurd. So they, they're going to have to find some really good science pretty quickly if they're going to try and fix that part. The bigger issue, Vivian, is that the Supreme Court has ruled, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled, and now a lower trial court has ruled as well, that the statute under the Public Health Service Act, um, under which they claim to have this authority, doesn't exist. Exactly. It's not appropriate. It's been inappropriately applied. And so the only remedy for that is for Congress to change the law. And I haven't seen anybody in Congress saying that they want to do that. So I think that's a... That's, you know, we feel pretty optimistic that if it does go to appeal, that it will, that we will, um, the decision will be affirmed. The other thing that's really interesting for you guys to know, or did you want to ask any questions? Did that answer your question? Vivian? No, I just wanted to say uh, it's also like, uh, you know, like when you said this like 30 day um, uh, thing that they could do, like to go about these uh, statutes uh, and the same thing would be with the Congress that would open also like an option for public debate on the topic, which they might not want at that point, because it's like, I mean, everyone, as you said, has uh, is now really fed up with the masks and uh, maybe all the other things as well. So I think it would also be like a kind of dangerous, um, uh, you know, entrance gate to like, um, you know, the critical uh, um, comments from the public. So that's maybe why they might not go that route. Yeah, well, they, true? May be, may able, they may be able to fix the procedural stuff. Uh, they're not going to be able to fix the problem about the statutory uh, foundation for all of this. 
But I think the most important thing you just mentioned it, the most important thing is the public reaction, the public's reaction to this. They cannot overcome this. And this is much more important than any um, article in the mainstream media about this, because this is direct democracy. It shows you how people react to this. Mm -hmm. And anyone, any congressperson who wants to uh, undo this is not going to get reelected. No, it'll be very challenging for them. Yeah, yeah it's quite right. So the um, original CDC order, which has now been struck down by the judge, is set to expire on May 3rd. Okay, so that's next Tuesday. What we don't know and what will be interesting to observe is what does DOJ do? One of the questions we have is, will they let it expire and then go to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and claim that the judge's ruling is now moot because the order is gone, right? There's a, there's a, this is a procedural way that they might try to get rid of the judgment. Why? Because they want to retain this statutory authority. Um, we are cautiously optimistic that they won't succeed, but you know, you never know. Mm. I, I mean, it, it seems to me fairly likely that um, our judge is very um, aware of these kinds of shenanigans and that the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals will be as well. And as I mentioned, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals already struck down CDC's other order for cruise liners, cruise ships. So that's the one thing that it'll be very interesting to watch how that unfolds next week. Do they resort to some kind of procedural game um, to try and get the 11th Circuit to remand the case, send the case back to um, Judge Mazel and order her to vacate her opinion? Or do they do the right thing? And if they choose to appeal it, have an appeal based on the merits of the case. It'll be very interesting to observe what happens. But would it be possible, could the, um, the 11th uh, Circuit, could they, um, could they as well say, it doesn't matter if it's like if it's expired or not is that also like legal from a or like is there like an argumentation from a legal point of view yes there are um other lawsuits now this is getting deeper into the law which is not my purview right i'm not an attorney but there are other cases where um something um a policy has been stopped and um the supreme court has ruled that I think it's the Supreme Court. I could be wrong. So, but that they're that just stopping doing something that's illegal isn't grounds for a judge to not intervene. Mm. So that's why I say we're optimistic, cautiously optimistic. But they may try this. It'll be interesting to see. And I believe that the Eleventh Circuit will affirm the lower court's ruling and not be susceptible to this argument because it's such a big, big issue, right? Yeah, I mean, also in the public's eye, I think it would also not look really good, you know, to come with such a formal um, argument and kind of random because it could have expired like two months later as well, you know, so then you'd have a different kind of situation. And if people are already against it, against the mask mandate, then I think it's so ridiculous that you now take this like tiny argument in order to get it back, get back the mandate uh, if it's like so illegal under these other aspects that you mentioned. It's, it's going to be know, hard. The real issue is the statute, right? That's that's the thing that is just so um, 
so hard, right? So concrete and convincing is that they didn't have the statutory authority. So they would have to reinterpret it in a different way. And then on top of that, this arbitrary and capricious part, that's a really damning um, component of this entire lawsuit as well, that they didn't adequately um, justify or substantiate why two, why not six, why not whatever, why, and where's the science to support that? And so it's a very interesting, um, let's just say that DOG, DOJ and CDC find themselves in a very interesting place. <laughs> even if they do, even if they do decide to appeal, um, ultimately, um, they're going to be, they're going to have to explain about their own research that they published in May of 2020. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Well, you know, unfortunately, the media is against us, right? And so yeah, getting know. that out there isn't so easy. But, you know, I, I don't know if, if the Bloomberg people, Bloomberg did a hit piece on me the other day. And, um, um, and I mentioned that study to them. And the journalist, literally, he's like, CDC published a study like that? He had no clue. Yeah. Yeah. That's why, you know what, basically, this is what we decided. It doesn't make any sense to talk to these people anymore because they don't know what they're talking about. And the only thing that they're trying to do, just like you said, is they're trying to uh, publish hit pieces on us. Yeah, it's just a push an agenda. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Two came out on the same day, one from the New York Times and one from Bloomberg News. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Oh well. Well, they're seeing you know, their, their funds dying down, dying out. You know, if if they can't yeah. continue with the narrative, I mean, who's going to support their their network of lies? Yeah. Well, they they can't admit that they were wrong because they're too deep in it, right? That's the real issue. Yeah, they begin. But listen, the 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 biggest takeaway is that we can win. Yeah. And yeah. we will win, and we will continue fighting, and we're going to keep on these targeted lawsuits, taking them down where we can, and we're gonna win in the long run. It may take a couple of years, it may take a while. You know, I'm not saying we're gonna win in the next day or two or in the next month, but we do have good judges who care about the constitution, who care about the rule of law, and who care about overstep, this administrative state creep. And we can win and we will win. We have the science and the law and what's right and truth on our side. And so that's what you know inspires me to keep doing what I'm doing. And I know it inspires you guys as well. And um, as I've been saying now for quite a while, globalism is the problem, localism is the solution, and we need to build schools and um, healthcare systems and banks and local currencies and things like this in order to take back our power from this centralized, captured, um, you know, structure, essentially. And on that Absolutely. note, yeah. I got to run, guys. I'm sorry, yeah. but I have a, because we are, we are, I'm conferring with my attorney group and some others to, um, on another big lawsuit, which I can't tell you about right now, but it has very, it, it could be very big. So I got to run to do that, but I thank you for having me. Please, everybody go and support us at healthfreedomdefense.org. We need all of your support in order to continue doing this work. And Reiner and Vivian, thank you so much for having me. And Corbin, thank you too for all you do behind the scenes and um, all the best to you guys. Thanks thank so you, much, Leslie. Leslie. We'll, do, we'll do great things together. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Whoa. That's exciting. Is, yes, it is very, it's very exciting. In particular, the public's reaction to it, because it is 
as I said, it's so much more informative than any of the mainstream media's uh, hit pieces that are being published. These people who are applauding this ruling will not read that shit. Okay. Um, now we turn to Mark Miller. We're almost on time, uh, Mark. It's great to see you. Um, you're a professor of media, culture, and communi communication in New York University. Your research interests include modern propaganda, history, and tactics of advertising, American film, and media ownership. Selected publications are The Culture of TV, this is from 1988, Mad Scientists, The Secret History of Modern Propaganda in 2004, and Bush Cheney's New World Order, also in 2004. Do you want to... Um, is, is there something we're missing here? Would you like to add something to this? Well, I, I think it's it's uh, relevant just to note that I've been studying the media since the 70s, writing about the media. Um, having got my PhD in, in English literature, I, I shifted my interests to the study of the media as it became increasingly clear to me over the decades how influential and powerful it is. And for the last 20 years or so, I've been teaching a, an annual course on propaganda at NYU um, because of a, a typical uh, dust up in 2020. Uh, I'm no longer allowed to teach that course, but wow. I still talk about it uh, every chance I get the subject of propaganda. And I think it's urgent that you and I, the three of us, talk about it uh, in the context of your legal effort, because I think that um, you know, propaganda has been the driver of this whole thing, and uh, enough is enough. So your your university told you you can't teach that course anymore. Well, I'll 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 try to be as succinct as possible. I was introducing my propaganda course as usual in September of 2020. The mm -hmm. only difference being we were doing it remotely, and I explained to my class then, as I always do at the beginning, that, that the challenge in studying propaganda is not to recognize it when you don't agree with it, because everyone can point to an example of propaganda they disagree with. The challenge is to study it when it pushes your own buttons. Um, and, you know, this is an experience I've had myself many times and continue to have. You study a propaganda drive only to discover that something you yourself have fervently believed is actually not true. So I was explaining this to the class and noting that we would we would be looking at, at propaganda historically, we would look at the Nazis, we'd look at the Bolsheviks, et cetera, but that our real interest would be in studying propaganda in real time. This is kind of a comfort zone, if you see what I mean. So I was, I was coming up with examples of the kind of thing we might study. I said, uh, look at how we're meeting. I mean, you hate this, I hate this. We'd much rather be in a classroom together. Why is this happening? Well, it's because of the COVID crisis, which has been driven from the start by a number of very powerful propaganda themes. That doesn't mean they're necessarily false, but it does mean that they're one-sided and simplistic. So I said, we might, for example, study the mask mandates. Uh, I explained to them that all the randomized controlled trials that had been conducted on masking uh, to block transmission of respiratory viruses 
had all found that masks do not work. I told them you would want to read those studies and you would also want to read the more recent studies finding otherwise. In other words, to study propaganda, you have to do comprehensive research, be as impartial as you can and make up your own mind. Well, a young woman in the class was so enraged by what I'd said that a few days later, she went on Twitter and demanded that I be fired. Ugh. NYU responded to this essentially by taking her side. Uh, and among the several things that happened was that I was told uh, not to teach the propaganda course the following semester, uh, but I was assured I'd be able to teach it eventually. But as, as things have turned out, um, I'm, I'm not allowed to teach it. And I don't even think they're going to offer it anymore. So, um, you know, you don't want to teach the slaves how to read. You follow me? <laughs> so um, what I was doing was too dangerous, apparently. That's, um, that's quite worrying, quite worrisome, I should okay. say. Um, yeah. I know that the same thing is happening all over the world. Um, the one right. good thing about the United States um, is, of course, that, it, that parts of the judiciary still work. I cannot say this for Germany or for Europe as a whole, maybe with the exception of Italy, which is under so much pressure now mm -hmm. that, as our colleague Dr. Holzeisen explained to us earlier, that they even uh, made a ruling, which says that uh, yeah, which which says that the uh, vaccine mandates uh, are illegal and unconstitutional because they cause damage. They cannot sweep this under the rug anymore. But um, as far as teaching is concerned, I know the situation is probably a lot worse in Germany, in particular. So you're still doing what you're doing. You can still teach except for this course. Um, right. It's better than nothing, I should say. No, it, it is, it is. And I, I, am, I am doing independent studies with students mm -hmm. who, who want us to. I mean, I can't think of a time in history, uh, either a time I've lived through or read about when the study, the critical study of propaganda and, a, and an understanding of how it works uh, is more, has been more important. Uh, it, it, it's a matter of extreme urgency First of all, that we that we undertake to teach propaganda study um, throughout high schools and colleges worldwide. Um, whereas at the moment, if it's taught, it's usually taught in a way that distances it from us, with an overemphasis on the Nazis and the Bolsheviks. You know, maybe some stuff about World War One, but courses that persist in treating propaganda as a totalitarian thing that is alien to us. Whereas historically, uh, propaganda, whether it's political or commercial, is actually an Anglo-American innovation. Um, you know, uh, it's as American as apple pie, but, but at the moment now it is, it is turning markedly totalitarian. So I think, I think that our conversation is, is quite important. I have a question. I once um, saw in a um, in a YouTube uh, clip. It's a long time ago. Uh, there was a um, a law professor, I think she was, and she was talking to a, a class and um, explained that, like from a certain year on, I don't know if that was the year 2000 or like later or earlier, um, that it was um, all of a sudden legal to propagandize Americans, and that before that it was actually like forbidden, and they maybe did that like in a you know undercover kind of 
way, like even produce like uh, films, like completely fake, uh, you know, like whatever um, about uh, things that had happened and present that to the people as being uh, authentic. And after that, I think you could do that without having to be afraid of, of legal, um, uh, you know, uh, consequences. Is that so? Or do you know anything about that? Well, yeah, they modified the Smith-Munt Act, which had forbidden um, intelligence agencies from propagandizing American people directly. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was under Obama that it was, um, you know, liberalized. Um, I don't, I don't actually know. I could be wrong, but I can't think of any examples of anyone who prosecuted the government or sued under that previous act. The fact is that the government has been doing this all along, you know, even though the CIA is is uh, allegedly forbidden in, by its charter to do propaganda on American soil or, or, or undertake any operations on American soil. They have been doing it anyway all along, you know, because congressional oversight is merely nominal and uh, they get away with it because people have allowed them to. But I think that that, that whole history um, of turning a blind eye to the danger of this kind of thing is now reaching a culmination, has reached a culmination in this crisis. So this gives us an opportunity to do a good sort of great reset, you know, where we, we stand up against this kind of thing because there, there is a precedent for it. Uh, you know, the, the Nuremberg trials included uh, Julius Stryker for for editing Der Sturmer, you know, which was this pornographic anti-Semitic uh, rag that that was devised to, you know, uh, intensify anti-Semitism or Jew hatred as much as possible in preparation for the Holocaust. And the filmmaker uh, Veit uh, Harlan, who made Jews, yeah. the anti-Semitic masterpiece, he, he went through three trials he was ultimately acquitted and then, you know, rehabilitated because he argued he he had done that film under duress. And I, I think there was some evidence on his side. At any rate, um, I think that what's happening now is comparable, as I know you do. And I think that the media's complicity is is key, you know, and, and that's that's what we're discussing. Yeah, super. We have um, we have known for quite a while now that this is psychological terrorism. Um, that's why we spoke to so many uh, to so many doctors of psychiatry and uh, psychology. You probably have heard of uh, Professor Matthias Desmond from Belgium, but their most important vehicle for this is, of course, the, the media, uh, mostly the mainstream media, not us, the alternative media. But um, the thing, I, if I remember correctly. Um, people have forgotten about propaganda because this is what it used to be, I don't know, 60 or 70 years ago, and then it became advertising. Um, is that is that true or is this, uh, am I mistaken in that? Well, um, we have had advertising all along, advertising mm -hmm. and marketing, mm -hmm. you know, which are basically euphemisms for commercial propaganda. That's what yeah. that is. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, we have had all kinds of political propaganda with the word political very, you know, broadly defined. 
so those those two things have been uh, simultaneous. Those two strands of the history of propaganda, and and they're intertwined too in certain ways because a lot of people in advertising have contributed to political campaigns and to war propaganda drives. The reason why people have 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 sort of lost the ability to recognize propaganda and to take it seriously is that it has always been misrepresented by the authorities who use it as something that the enemy does. Yeah. In fact, in World War One, which which marks really the beginning of the history of modern propaganda, specifically is used by the British and the Americans. Um, in in that history, you find that um, whenever the Allied propaganda would mention any communication from Germany, they would inevitably refer to it as propaganda. They never referred to their own stuff as propaganda. So, so the word, you know, um, became well known for the first time as as a highly loaded term, and as one that was a phenomenon that was always. Uh, uh, inimical, whereas we were only defending ourselves against it. Our side is circulating information. Our side is educating people. The Germans do propaganda. So everybody absorbed that pejorative use of the term. Now, after the war, as it gradually became known to everyone in Britain and America, just how uh, egregiously they had been lied to because a number of participants in the propaganda drive went public, you know, afterward, confessional articles and some books uh, basically saying, you know, we made this up, we made that up uh, in a spirit of contrition, it seemed. And people were really shocked by this. And uh, by the late 20s, they uh, now came to understand and this was an understanding that was sharpened during the Great Depression, that propaganda comes from our side, that propaganda comes from our government, it comes from our banks, it comes from our major advertisers, see? But it was still understood as a pejorative term. So I, th I think that there, there was a period there between World War One and World War Two, when there was actually an, an impressive sort of mass understanding of what propaganda really is. Uh, you know, in Columbia University in the late 30s started an institute for propaganda analysis, whose purpose was to educate the public about propaganda, which was bubbling up all over the place in the 30s from all sides, you know. So um, that's that basically came to an end with World War II, because in wartime, you cannot be critical of propaganda. And that was immediately followed by the Cold War. And the Cold War certified the association of propaganda with totalitarianism. So that if, if there was propaganda out there, it was the communists. If the communists were saying anything audible, that was propaganda. And what we were doing was trying to resist it with the truth, which what they called the strategy of truth. So now um, I think we're we're all paying for the fact that we have, you know, uh, cease to take a critical view or to have any kind of critical understanding of propaganda, which people use as a synonym for lying, but they don't understand how subtle it can be, and they don't understand its crucial interrelationship with censorship.
the two go together and they always oh. have. Very important. Yeah, they do not understand this. Um, one other important aspect, I think, is that only now, I don't know what happened between, this is news to me when you're saying that between World War I and World War II, many people began to understand that it's not just the other side, but it's us as well who are using propaganda, basically lying to the people. But um, is it correct that people are now even beginning to understand that it's basically the same people who are using propaganda on both sides? Because we have now learned through all of the, we as the Corona Committee, that is, uh, through all the, all the people whom we've interviewed that um, uh, World War One and World War Two, World War Two in particular, um, those who are pulling the strings behind the scenes, well, they may have, they may have, uh, they 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 may have been responsible for the for propaganda on both sides because they're making money on both sides. What um, what I, for example, had not understood um, up until I think Vera Sharaf told us about it. Um, is that World War II was largely financed by, should I say, American oligarchs, uh, British and American oligarchs. So it, it is not really surprising to now understand that these very same people are making money on both sides, financing both the Germans and the Russians, that they're also responsible, not just for financing this, but also for the propaganda on both sides. That's absolutely true. Um, you know, it, it 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 hurts some people to hear it, but the city of London and Wall Street um, were definitely involved in the Russian Revolution for geopolitical and financial reasons. Uh, as I say, this this drives uh, you know people on the left crazy to hear, but there is much truth to it. And and indeed, you know, it was it was the British and American oligarchs who planned and then protracted World War One, you know, for various reasons. Uh, and then indeed, uh, they went on to finance the Nazi war machine. And um, I have said all along that, you know, the, the heads of General Motors and Ford and, uh, you know, the Rockefeller, the Rockefeller family and others who um, not only financed the eugenics movement, which uh, you know they, they did in Germany and Britain as well as in the United States, but then continued to arm the Nazi war machine. And I believe that they should have been in the dock at Nuremberg, you know, along with those high-profile uh, Nazi perpetrators. I think that was an oversight to, yeah. you know, well, to turn a blind eye to them. Um, mm -hmm. Or maybe it was deliberate, but the point is, I don't think that that should happen again. I think that what we're living through is um, a a grotesque revisitation and enlargement of the genocidal program under Hitler. It is no longer genocidal; it is democidal. You know, it it it's its target is is humankind, not just a particular group. And we see people uh, dropping dead suddenly worldwide. Um, I, I, I want to mention something I've been doing weekly because it's relevant to the subject. Um, starting in late January, I began to, to post on my sub stack summaries 
of that previous week's reports of people who died suddenly. That expression died suddenly used to be an obituary code. It used to mean suicide or a drug overdose. It doesn't mean that anymore. It can, sometimes it surely does, but what it tends to mean now when the, the, the appearance of that phrase or died unexpectedly has increased at least threefold since two years ago. What it now means is literally that, that people are just dropping dead, either with no cause given, okay, which is unprecedented. I mean, except for very old people, uh, you know, obituaries used to, used to mention a cause of some kind, or at least would say, we don't know the cause yet. Now, uh, very, very often there is no cause mentioned, or we hear that the cause is not yet known, and then we never hear it, or the deaths are attributed to uh, heart attack, cardiac arrest, strokes, or blood clots, and we know how prevalent those adverse events are now, or they are the result of sudden aggressive cancers, which as Dr. Ryan Cole and others have pointed out, appears to be another consequence of how these so-called vaccines devastate the immune system. So as the weeks have gone by, it has been increasingly difficult for me just logistically to track and compile all these sudden deaths. So in other words, there's a, a large body, as you very well know, there's a large body of statistical evidence um, you know, from life insurance companies and from VAERS and from DMED and, you know, uh, undertakers. I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of statistical and anecdotal evidence that the that all-cause mortality has spiked since the vaccination drive began, right? I believe that putting names and faces to the dead is a far more powerful and poignant way to convey the enormity of what's happening. But you see, this is precisely the kind of thing that the media does everything it can to prevent people from understanding, okay? That's what they did throughout the crisis. And I have a whole list here of, um, you know, the various aspects of the crisis that the media deliberately misrepresented, deliberately and consistently misrepresented, while also blacking out the other side of the story and crucially slandering uh, defaming people uh, the way Leslie, who, to whom you just spoke, was defamed, the way we've all been defamed. And I think that there are legal grounds to go after them for this. But, but before we get to that, I just want to say that one of the things that really struck me and that continues to strike me as I do these compilations, I post them every Wednesday, is how many ways and in how many ingenious ways the media attempts to normalize what's happening so that people will not understand it or even notice it, okay? Now here are a number of headlines that uh, begin in May of 2021, okay? And every single one of them uh, promotes some other explanation for this rise in sudden deaths, okay? They never mentioned vaccination. Uh, now listen to this, why people at risk of heart disease may want to avoid fish oil, how environmental noise harms the cardiovascular system, 
What to know about birth control and blood clots. Young adult cannabis consumers nearly twice as likely to suffer from a heart attack. Physical activity may increase heart attack risk. This blood type puts you at risk for heart disease. There may be a best bedtime for your heart. Um, extreme heat events jeopardize cardiovascular health, experts warn. Now, that's extreme heat. On the other hand, tis the season. The ways cold weather can affect your body from winter vagina to blood clots. I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's reached the heights of ludicrousness with a story out of Italy that pizza margarita is causing all these heart attacks in Italy. And, and I have to tell you, both of you, that, that Italy's, the necrology in Italy week by week is absolutely shocking, you know. Um, for some reason, that, that there a lot of those deaths are reported. Uh, and then, you know, just the other day, there was a piece about how there was a spike in heart attacks after the last election in America. So these people are actually claiming in all seriousness that we have to keep a close eye on, on major political events, okay? Now, the thing that's striking about this and important, what this tells us is not just that the media is too quick to you know, uh, distract us and say, oh, it's not this, it's that. This could not have happened if there were not a significant number of academic studies that were funded in time mm -hmm. for those studies to come out so that the media could then headline their pieces as they do. So this, this speaks directly you know, to the high likelihood, in fact, the necessity of a longstanding, extremely comprehensive, sophisticated propaganda plot, okay? An arrangement that includes academic researchers and and the media, uh, you know, in this ongoing effort to tell people that you don't see what your eyes tell you you see, you don't hear what your ears tell you you're hearing, okay? What's going on all around you isn't going on all around you, you know, listen to us, right? Which is what the inner party says. I mean, that's in 1984, that you're supposed to distrust the evidence of your own senses and listen to the ministry of truth, right? So, um, the, you know, this is, a, this is an enormous uh, juggernaut that we're dealing with here. And, and the question is how most effectively to, to nail them, to attack them. Can I ask you, like these, uh, all these um, reports about the sort of um, alternative reasons for, for heart attacks and so on, uh, do you think that's just like that has a source? Do you think it maybe comes from like um, press agencies like Bloomberg who all of a sudden, you know, spread this kind of idea? So it's maybe like a, a source behind um, uh, Bloomberg or who, who else? Uh, or is this just something that we see a an individual journalist looks at that and thinks, oh, I mean, what uh, if it's not the vaccines, which I might, must not say, uh, what else could I just bring so that it makes sense in the whole context? Are they, is it, you know, like self-fulfilling? Are they, you know, just playing along or like in, uh, you know, succumbing to, to what they feel is necessary that they would say? Or what's the psychological thing behind it? Or is there a source? Well, I, I, I think it's a safe bet that if you hear the same thing or the same kind of thing, everywhere. You see it everywhere. You cannot escape it. It's the same story. 
I mean, we're talking here about versions of the same story, you know, whether or not it's, it's referees whistles or political elections or pizza margarita, it's all the same story. It's that, yeah, a whole lot of people are dropping dead from massive heart attacks, but it's got nothing to do with the vaccine, although they leave that unspoken. I have no doubt that in some instances, an enterprising reporter, you know, and they're always looking for material and they tend to be rather lazy, you know, so they see something, oh, this will make a good story and the editor okays it. I think it's likelier, however, that, that we are dealing with an extremely well-oiled machine. Um, you know, I, I, I wanna take just a moment to explain the, 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 the enormous structure of the media because it's, it's important that we understand how it's set up uh, and, 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 and with what entities it is interlinked so that we can, you know, um, approach this problem uh, you know, knowing as much as possible about it. You know, what we call the media now is, first of all, concentrated structurally to an unprecedented degree, which is a process that really started up in the 60s, uh, but it, it, it accelerated under Ronald Reagan in the 80s. He was the first to deregulate the media. And then Bill Clinton signed the telecommunications bill in 1996 and, and these were ways to make it possible for the same powers to own as much as possible of the media. So we often hear this claim that six multinational corporations, media corporations, are responsible for some 90% of the content we take in. And that is true, okay? So as, as, as the media, as like Disney, for example, becomes ever bigger and owns more and more of the media and not just movie studios, but ABC news and all the rest of it, then every, uh, every component of the empire, every, every one of its uh, holdings is that much more easily scripted or, or, you know, pushed to say this or say that this then is compounded by the inevitable dependency of commercial media on its, on its advertising revenue, okay? And this has been a problem since the 19th century. Uh, in the late 19th century, the most prolific advertiser in American media, and I think British as well, was the patent medicine industry, you know, speaking of poisons, right? They spent so much money on advertising that, that no media outlets would ever raise any questions about the risks of, of, of the products that they sold or the uselessness of the products they sold or the addictiveness of the products they sold. So people are unaware of the fact that in the late 19th century, there was a cocaine crisis in the United States that mostly there was a lot of Qatar in the 19th century as a kind of a lung thing, you know, you get phlegmy and there were Qatar remedies that were widely sold and they were full of cocaine, you know? And some products had morphine in them, some had alcohol. Well, because the media was so dependent on that revenue, they never questioned this, which is the same thing that then happened in the early through mid 20th century with cigarettes, right? Same thing, tobacco companies. So now it's Pfizer, right? Pfizer has a huge footprint in terms of all the outlets that it sponsors, from most newscasts up to the last Oscars broadcast, you know, so there's that, okay? Now, this problem of um, the media being 
uh, enthrall to its corporate owners and to its major advertisers has been compounded further by the role that Bill Gates and his foundation have played in this crisis, because Gates has spent, I think, well over $250 million on what he calls his strategic media partnerships. This means that Gates subsidizes the BBC, uh, NBC News, uh, the New York Times, The Guardian, uh, and so on. Long list of outlets that are dependent on him for those revenues. And he also has had um, a he's played a significant role in funding fact-checking organizations, which have only made the problem even that much worse. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, as the media has become more internally uh, concentrated, it has also inevitably tightened its relationship with the government or with the governments, and that usually means intelligence agencies. So. Um, this has been a problem since the 50s, of course, with the media's manipulation by the CIA and, and others. Uh, I think it's become even worse now. And again, you know, another factor we have to add to this is the all importance of Google, the major search engines, and big tech generally, because all the propaganda that comes swirling out of the media, you know, the traditional media, um, all that. Um, propaganda uh, ends up being uh, uh, repeated and repeated and repeated and amplified. It ends up echoing endlessly on what we call social media. The so social media is kind of a way for every man to become a propaganda vector, see? And of course, this is uh, made, you know, not just uh, worrisome, but, but destructive by the fact that the social media companies have you know, exercise such iron censorship themselves. So what was supposed to be a kind of wild west for free expression, right? The internet is now, you know, heavily dominated by players who are very close to the government, very close to big pharma, and, you know, thereby uh, exert this um, uh, suffocating uh, uh, censorship on, on uh, all of those who would disagree with the um, fake science uh, that has been trotted out as gospel truth, right? So um, let's see, let me make sure I haven't forgotten anything. This is such a complex situation. Um, yeah. So um, let me make one corrective statement to you, Reiner. It isn't only the corporate media that we're talking about. We're also talking about so-called public media Okay, we're talking about NPR and PBS, yeah. the CBC, the BBC, they are just as bad, just as toxic as the New York Times and CNN and MSNBC. And crucially, we're also talking about the left press. Okay, now let me make clear. You're talking to someone who long identified as being on the left and who wrote many, many articles for that wing of the media. I also wrote four or five op-eds for the New York Times. I was also a frequent interviewee on NPR, sometimes on PBS, okay? So um, I can tell you it has been, to put it mildly, a major disappointment, um, a serious shock to see the left uh, promote the same agenda that we get from the corporate media 
I was going to suggest to you, I mean, this may be presumptuous on my part, but because this juggernaut is so big and so tightly connected to such powerful players, it might be worth considering picking out a few of the most egregious perpetrators. I would certainly focus on the New York Times. The New York Times has a disgraceful record here. Now, to put this in a larger context, the Times has been an avid participant in every major propaganda drive in modern times from World War I up to the present. So their record is actually pretty appalling. But between those crises, the Times was fairly open mm -hmm. to points of view that it itself did not share. And hence, they allowed me to write op-eds for them for a time. But since Trump's first, uh, since Trump, you know, became president in 2016, in particular, the Times and all the rest of what we call the liberal media has has really, um, they've all taken my breath away. I never thought I would see a day when the press in the democracies, you know, the American press, I never thought I'd see a day when it sounds and reads exactly like the Ministry of Truth in 1984, when it sounds and reads exactly like the press under Dr. Goebbels, which sounds and reads exactly like the press, you know, when, when Lenin uh, oversaw Pravda, you know, there's no difference. The lies are just as um, psychotically false and um, brazen and cynical, but above all, destructive, you know, as anything we, we, we either recall from Orwell's dystopia or from totalitarian systems, we have now entered a moment when our media operates as a totalitarian system. It brooks no argument. It seeks not only to silence, but to destroy its critics or even, even people asking questions. Um, and I, this is another point I wanted particularly to stress with you both. It seems to me that you really have solid grounds for going after the media because of its demonstrable uh, collaboration or collusion with powerful state bureaucrats who use it as a way to um, crush you know, those who don't agree with them. If you read Scott Atlas's book, A Plague Upon Our House, he gives a very detailed account of exactly how Fauci and Burks and the others in the government basically used the media to defame him and, and to discredit him. Paul Alexander went through exactly the same thing. And I strongly recommend, if you haven't had time to watch it yet, the interview he just did with Christina Borgeson, B-O-R-J-E-S-S-O-N, simply for sending out an internal email noting the scientific evidence from places like Sweden and Switzerland to the effect that children should not be kept home from school because they run no risk of catching COVID. Just for sending that internal email, he was told that the um, experts, you know, Fauci, that circle, they were going to cut his balls off. They said that to him. And they told him when and where and how uh, the propaganda, the media drive against him would start and end, and it did, it did. So, I mean, you know, I have a long list of people, I mean, you know of all of them, all of whom were, we might call them COVID dissidents, who in the best scientific and democratic spirit 
were simply questioning received opinion, right? Uh, and they were all mauled by the media. This is, as far as I can tell, a demonstrable case of the media abetting the government in the deprivation of citizens' free speech rights. See? So they're actually violating the First Amendment in collusion with the government, see? And, and, and people like Fauci and the others are so arrogant that they have not cared that they basically, you know, lay this right out. This is what's going to happen to you. And then you can trace the media's um, response. You know, they basically go along with it and, and uh, you know, uh, slander these people mercilessly. And this has... Again, all, it all comes back to the vaccination drive, vaccination drive, which is a, 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 an unprecedented crime against humanity, whose consequences we are only now beginning to you know, apprehend. And all the censorship and all those lies have essentially served to keep that injection drive going. So, you know, uh, this is staggering to me. I, I often compare the persistence of this drive in the face of all this evidence of, this, of its destructiveness with the swine flu vaccination drive in 1976, when it had killed 26 people, they pulled the plug on it. 26 was too high a toll, so they stopped it. How many have died from these so-called vaccines to date? And yet we still hear the whole mighty Wurlitzer you know, grinding out that that tune, you know, that we all have to get vaccinated and we have to get our children vaccinated. So, you know, propaganda kills. What you don't know can hurt you and it is hurting people very badly. And the same thing is happening all over the world. Our good friend, Dr. Wolfgang Wodak, who um, is our chief medical advisor, you might say, He's the one who stopped the other swine flu, the one that uh, they tried to make into a pandemic in 2009. And he was only able to stop it because he was then in a position of political power, being a member of the German Bundestag and also a member of the Council of Europe. And he was after that. He, it turned out that um, very same, well, they, that's the first time they made a simple flu into a pandemic because they had just changed the definition of what a pandemic is. But it turns out that, um, and, and he, uh, Wolfgang Wodak, was a well-respected, very experienced uh, doctor, um, lots of experience as a lung specialist. Um, he was a guest on numerous talk shows. He was, um, well, he was just a highly respected public person, so to speak. The, the, very, the very moment that he dared question this new pandemic, which is almost comically um, identical with what happened then, except that most people have, have forgotten about it. The very moment that he first dared question this, he was vilified. He was mauled, as you said, by the mainstream media. Um, and um, our good friend and uh, professor of law, uh, Martin Schwab, not related with the bad person. Uh, he wrote, I don't I don't know if I sent you this, but I, I meant to do it. I, he wrote an expert opinion, a legal expert opinion on the culpability 
of the German mainstream media, which in, are in no way different from the American or any other mainstream media. Um, I think it's 180 pages long. He, he wrote it at a time uh, trying to defend Wolfgang Wodak because he was coming under a lot of pressure, including in that organization, which claims it is the most important anti-corruption NGO in the world. It's called Transparency International. Wolfgang was one of their, uh, he was a member of the board there. They're trying to kick him out because it turns out this is a good organization, but you know what? At the very top, it is totally corrupt, totally corrupt. Uh, so they tried to kick him out, and that's the occasion um, which uh, Martin Schwab uh, used in order to write this expert opinion. This is in, I think, in late 2020, maybe in mid-2020, I'm not sure. It took him a long time because it's 180 pages long. But um, I think there is an English translation, and he was at that point uh, still trying to be moderate about his criticism, his legal criticism. In the meantime, I know that he's changed his tune completely. And uh, if we were to use this in a court of law, we would uh, probably have to get a new version from him that spells it out in much more detail, because this is now the time when you cannot mince words anymore. We do have to call a spade a spade. That's why we have to talk about genocide, for example. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. It's worth noting, um, I'm sure you know this, uh, but this pattern began uh, during the HIV AIDS era. And of course, the, the the book to read on this is Bobby Kennedy's The Real Anthony Fauci. Yeah. But what Fauci did to uh, Peter Duisberg, for example, uh, and, and a number of other um, uh, doctors and journalists, you know, the few journalists who had the temerity to, uh, you know, just listen to what the other side had to say. They were all uh, savaged, you know, mercilessly savaged by the media again. And there, too, um, we, we haven't brought this up yet. But there's an ideological dimension to this. You know, all of this. Uh, where's the the mantle of of woke virtue? You know, it's it's all about protecting others, protecting, you know, people of color, that kind of thing. So when this began in the '80s, these kinds of attacks on on other scientists, you know, who did not agree with the HIV/AIDS hypothesis, it was all about uh, if you don't agree with us, you're homophobic. If you don't agree yeah. with us, you you want gay people to die. Uh, and that propaganda then conduced to Dr. Fauci's promotion of AZT among gay men, about 300,000 of whom were killed by the drug, right? So um, this, this is, you know, this, this pattern of defamation of all dissidents uh, began really uh, decades ago, but it has culminated now in, in, in this, um, this nightmare. Here's a, this is, this is right on cue, so to speak. Um, we have, I hope the, um, I hope Corbin hears me now, but we have a picture of uh, Fauci and we have a short video clip of a, uh, of an airline pilot after he received the shots. Let us uh, take a look because you're referring to the HIV crisis, which uh, as many people now know, is was probably another staged um, thing that happened back then, but we'll have to take a deeper look into this. Let's take a picture 
uh, let's take a, a look at this picture, if you can play this, please. Yeah, here it is. Uh, Vivian, can you read this? Because it's uh, most people probably won't be able to read it. Shall I read it aloud? Yes, please. Okay. The man on, the, on your left is Anthony Fauci, who in the 1980s, um, HIV AIDS epidemic suppressed effective treatments in favor of deadly doses of AZT, a toxic expensive pharma drug that killed more people than AIDS itself. The man on your right is Anthony Fauci, effective treatment in favor of remdesivir, a toxic expensive pharma drug that killed more people than COVID-19 itself. Yeah, um, we will have to take a much, much closer look, take a deep dive into what happened then, because, you know, the discussion always, the, the AIDS discussion, the HIV discussion always evolves around, is there a virus or is there no virus? Now it evolves or it, 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 it um, kind of focuses on, has the virus been uh, properly isolated, whatever. I think the real problem is somewhere underneath all of this. But uh, let us also see what this man and those who are in cahoots with him has actually caused because the outcome of this is not a positive one. It has nothing to do with health. So let us take a look at this short video clip. My name is Bob Snow. I'm a captain, been a captain for a number of years. My total service with the company is over 31 years. On November 7th, I was mandated to receive a vaccine. Quite literally, I was told if I did not receive the vaccination, I would be fired. This was from our director of flight. So, under duress, I received the vaccine. Uh, now, just a few days ago, after landing in Dallas, six minutes after we landed, I passed out. Uh, I coded. I required three shocks. I need to be intubated. I'm now in the ICU in Dallas. This is what the vaccine has done for me. I will probably never fly again uh, based upon the criteria that the FAA establishes for pilots. I was hoping to teach my daughter to fly. She wants to be a pilot. That will probably never happen. All courtesy of the vaccine. This is unacceptable and I am one of the victims. You can see that this is the actual result of the vaccine for some of us. Mandatory. No questions asked, get the shot, or you're fired. This is not the American way. And therefore, extremely powerful tone. Um, he is not apparently an anti-vaxxer or anything. He's just calmly explaining what happened to him after he got the shots. Now, he's an airline pilot. Uh, had this incident happened not after the landing, but during the landing, well, we can only imagine what this might have caused. Um, it, I think it is extremely important to see through this propaganda, to see through the censorship, the um, fact checkers, and this is what we really need to know. We need to see and hear these people and we need to see and hear the reactions of the people who applauded the ruling that uh, Leslie won in federal court, because that is reality. That's that. I think that is the most important message for people to understand that they should not listen to the Ministry of Truth 
and they should not listen to the politicians who tell them, including, by the way, our, our yeah, um, the head of the European Union, the um, um, uh, commissioner, what's her name? Um, Ursula von der Leyen, yeah, she, she and others, verbatim, by the way, verbatim, the same story, keep saying, only listen to trusted media sources, trusted media sources. Well, well, yes. You decide for yourself who you're going to trust, but well, not it, Yeah, it, it, it's gotten to the point now. This is not an overstatement. Um, what we call the left, okay, I think it's a misnomer, but what we call the left and what calls itself the left and the media uh, now actually explicitly define themselves as they who never doubt the official narrative. Mm. Doubting the official narrative is a far right thing, which is just mind boggling to me. But this has, you know, un again, you know, under under the cover of woke, this enables a kind of uh, totalitarianism that we associate with with Orwell's novel. Right. And the only um, antidote to this, as you've just implied, is a um, an unabashed presentation of the truth of the matter. You have to hear from the people who have been harmed, right? You have to let their voices resonate. And, and I want to add in, in uh, to kind of supplement what, what that pilot says in, in the video that I have discovered in compiling all these sudden deaths, you know, week by week, a really strikingly high number of mysterious crashes of either uh, small planes or helicopters or cars you know, single single vehicle collisions that kill the driver. If somebody drives into a lake, nobody understands why. They drive into a bridge abutment in broad daylight. This happens over and over and over again. And mysterious drownings also happen. That kids, perfectly healthy seeming kids are swimming at a swim meet, and then several of them will sink to the bottom of the pool and have to be rescued, right? Uh, and then a lot of bizarre drownings that are reported in the media. So it isn't just those of us who have been jabbed who need to be concerned about the consequences of this drive. It's all of us, right? We could all be taking a flight, you know, whose pilot has a car, goes into cardiac arrest. We could all be walking down the street, you know, when somebody loses consciousness behind the wheel. Something that was already happening, by the way, uh, under the mask mandates. A uh, car and driver reported in the summer of 2020, uh, a national increase in uh, fatal car accidents. And I believe that so many people driving all by themselves with masks on, you know, it, it would induce the kind of hypoxia that can cause you to lose consciousness. Uh, at any rate, these are the kinds of truths that we have to get out there, right? And that's why your effort is so important, you know, beyond the, the legal upshot of what you're doing. This is um, a, a, a precious uh, opportunity to demonstrate these truths, you know, in a courtroom to people uh, and to show up the media for its outrageous and demonstrable lies. This has to be done because I don't think that, that enough of us will wake up in time to change all this unless and until uh, an appreciable number of people it, it isn't that they have to recognize that there are no viruses they don't have to that's not it 
what people have to recognize in order to wake up is that the authorities they have always trusted, governments, the academy, the medical establishment, and especially the media, that they are not just incompetent, they are malign. This is malignity, okay? What they're doing is, is clearly evil. There is no other way to describe it. When people see that, if and when they can take that in, because it's a big, it's a hard pill to swallow. I understand that. But when enough people get it, um, they will come around. You know, it's, it's worth recalling that the war in Vietnam, uh, it did not end because of people marching against it. And I was one of those people, right? It did not end because of anti-war protests, which actually tended to piss a lot of people off. The war in Vietnam ended because the casualty rate was so high that it was no longer possible for the government to explain it away or to, to distract people from it with more propaganda about the light at the end of the tunnel. Too many people lost loved ones. Too many people had loved ones come home destroyed, right? They couldn't, they couldn't uh, you know, keep the genie in the bottle anymore. So they had to, they, they had to end it. And something like that is, is happening now. Now, as that threatens to happen, the media and its puppeteers double down and become more desperate. They become more repressive. They become more um, slanderous and, and uh, you know, really more hysterically uh, belligerent and, and uh, lie even more desperately because they... I don't think they can afford to just stop, you know, they're in this deep. So, um, you know, we, this is a real struggle. It's a real life or death struggle that we have to win. I have one question, like for us who, um, you know, we have, we have the feeling uh, that we have the feeling that we are seeing through what's going on. Um, what's, what's different, do you think, between us and the ones who, to fall for uh, who fall for the propaganda and is there something that we can learn from that maybe different attitude different setup or whatever this different kind of awareness that we can maybe um, spill over to the other ones in order to get them uh, see things as they are well you know i i watched your exchange with uh, matthias desmet and i've watched his other interviews and i agree i agree with him uh, you know pretty much down the line and and particularly with his estimate that like a third of the population are completely hypnotized a third are not right a third get it and then another third uh, are uh, people you can talk to you can reach them they're on the fence their minds are open maybe they were hurt by one shot and don't want to get the second And this is actually, I mean, there, there's historical evidence that this has been the case for a very long time. You know, in the 18th century, during the American Revolution, Sam Adams, the revolutionary, basically divided the population up in a similar way. That there were a third of the population were in favor of independence, a third were Tories, and a third were mainly thinking about their knitting, you know, but you could talk to them. I think this is kind of an eternal thing for whatever reason. Uh, and therefore that we need not really waste too much time and energy trying to reason the deeply hypnotized into consciousness. I, I, I just, I've tried and tried and tried, and it, 
you can't do it, you know. Now, as a, as a teacher, I, I am always delighted to rediscover that, that younger people are more receptive. They are open-minded. And if you, if you engage them in critical study of propaganda and get them to do the research, encourage them to draw their own conclusions, as, a, as opposed to sort of battering them with evidence, you know, saying, read this, read that, read this, read that, you know, that, that tends to scare people off or, or, you know, insults their pride. It doesn't work. But those who can be reached uh, are those we are obliged to reach. You know, this is a moral obligation of the most important kind, because it has to do not only with individual lives, but with the collective life of humankind across the board and the preservation or the reclamation of a world, you know, whose pleasures we have every right to enjoy, you know, social pleasures, aesthetic pleasures. It's all been taken away from us. But what they've done is not just commit uh, unimaginable mass murder, but they have to some extent killed the world, you know, uh, which we now have to bring back to life. And in order to do that, I believe we have to rebuild all of those key institutions whose absolute corruption has placed us where we are. It's the professional classes that are responsible for this. It is certainly the medical establishment. It is certainly the academy, okay? And it is certainly the media. These, these institutions have to be built up all over again, you know, yeah. because there's no, there's no way to reclaim the ones that have, have become so uh, foul, you know, and untrustworthy. We, we have to take a fresh look at all of these institutions. Some of them, most of them will not be, cannot be salvaged. We're going to have to set up our own system. I keep saying this over and over again. When you mentioned the left, there's a good, ex the, the, the left isn't the left anymore. Um, this it's, the right. is only, it's, it's another one of these euphemisms. You know, you used to think the left is liberal, that they're clear thinking, critical people who will not just follow orders. That's not the case anymore. It's just the opposite. And a, a very a good example is uh, what happened in Germany with the Green Party. The Green Party is now the chief, uh, they're the warmongers. They're, they're the ones who are pressing for more arms to be delivered to Ukraine. And when you're saying that this is, you didn't say it, you didn't use these words, but uh, ultimately this is just like the Vietnam War was, um, this is going to be decided by the body count, by the people whose deaths and whose serious illnesses cannot be suppressed anymore. Everyone knows someone in the meantime who died of the vaccine or because he got the shots or after he got the shots. That's not... Uh, let it sound as though this is a uh, causation is always sh uh, a sure thing. It is not, but um, it is what we're seeing is uh, so alarming that the least that these people who used to be the left, the least they should do is ask for a uh, 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 an examination of what's going on. That's the least they should do. Instead, they're pushing for war in Ukraine. And That's I right. think they're doing this because they're mere. They, to me, if you look at the at the chief protagonists in in Germany of the Green Party, one of them is our I don't know what he is, Secretary of something, probably um, uh, Commerce. Uh, his name is uh, Robert Habeck, and the other one is our um, uh, Secretary of State. Her name is Baerbock. Both of them do not have a clue 
of what they're talking about. They are so plainly stupid. The woman can't even talk. And, um, and that's why I think they're not the real left anymore. These are the, they have been taken over by the other side and they're really obviously puppets. I just hope that the body count will not extend to a real war uh, like the one in Vietnam. Currently it's, it's still being contained in, uh, in Ukraine, but there's lots and lots of evidence that it's not gonna be much longer and the whole thing will spill over through Poland into Germany and the rest of Western Europe. But through exposing all of this, we still hope that we have a chance to stop it. Once you, un once you uh, expose what you said is the most important thing, and I fully agree with that, it's not about whether or not there are viruses or the virus has been uh, uh, properly isolated. It's they have to understand that the people who we used to trust are not making mistakes. They're evil. They're evil. That's right. I, I, I want to make one last point. I know we're, we're out of time, but this is an important one. Uh, you know, I was I did a quick review since, you know, we agreed that I would come on and talk to you of a very quick review um, of the Nuremberg uh, trials and, and that approach to the problem of, of really virulent propaganda that has the uh, eventual effect of, of, of killing people. And I think you could certainly make an argument that um, the media is guilty of incitement to genocide, okay? Yes. And um, I was thinking about this and I realized that this is this, this kind of a straight line that we can trace from the deplorables, because again, this all sort of begins with, with you know, Trump's moving to the White House, you know, a development that drove the whole left completely insane with with hatred and 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 fear of him the deplorables then become the anti-maskers which is the first uh, uh, very large group of uh citizens to be targeted during 2020 you know year one of covid anti-maskers and i i did a study of the way that the media reported on the masking controversy at the grassroots level and the only articles that say the New York Times or CNN would ever run uh, spotlighted examples of alleged violence by anti-maskers. Okay, now I came across many, many examples from local media and social media of uh, maskers treating the unmasked with violence. You know, some spitting on them, screaming at them, driving them out of stores. You know, there were videos. None of this appeared in the New York Times. It was the opposite, okay? So it was, as is usually the case with war propaganda, it was highly projective. In other words, you know, it's what, it's what the prosecutors at, at Nuremberg thought of as um, accusation in a mirror, you know, where you accuse the other side of doing what you're doing. So anti-maskers were now, was the new name for deplorables, right? Because it was a given, they were all far right. Then the anti-maskers became the anti-vaxxers. And the, the, the hatefulness of the media's reportage on, on, on the vaccine hesitant uh, is really, really striking. And there's a piece that Byram Bridal just published yesterday on his Substack about a new study that just kicks this whole thing up a notch. He calls it hate speech wearing a scientific disguise. And it is. The way that it casts the unvaccinated as as you know, utterly 
uh, repellent, inexcusably reckless, selfish uh, vectors of disease. This is very, very reminiscent of the way the Nazis, you know, uh, describe the Jews as mm -hmm. vectors of typhus as well as tuberculosis and venereal disease. People don't understand that the Holocaust was carried out in the name of public health and yes. the name of racial hygiene. Mm -hmm. This is really no different, but here's the thing. Here's the crucial distinction. Our media is guilty of incitement to genocide by uh, 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 demonizing those who have not been jabbed, okay? But it doesn't stop there because that demonization is again at the service in furtherance of an ongoing drive to get more people to get more shots you see so it isn't only that they have you know basically defined the unvaccinated in ways that will justify their eventual detention right but they are doing this in pursuit of an even higher injection rate so they are doubly guilty of incitement to genocide, if you see what I mean. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, makes perfect it's, sense. It's crazy. Yes. Well, um, it all goes to show that it is not just on one front that we have to fight, but probably on two fronts maybe more, but we have to continue getting out the truth. I think we all agree that Matthias Desmond's analysis is correct. If we stop talking, then it's all over. So we must continue to speak the truth, truth to power, uh, only this time it's truly evil power. And we must continue with our legal efforts. I'm so glad that Leslie won this case. I am so glad about this. And I'm so glad it happened here in the US because those are the only, there's India, of course, but those are the only two places on earth where the judiciary still seems to function, or at least a, um, a large part of the judiciary, India and parts of the US. The judiciary is completely dead in Germany. Um, it all started um, and, and ended with that uh, search and seizure of the two judges and their, um, in Weimar and their um, experts. Um, there may be some good people. I'm sure there's still some good people in the judiciary in Germany, but uh, they have uh, they've been silenced. They've been silenced, and that's precisely what this intended to do. Um, we're all being vilified. You are Vivian is here in the U.S. Um, the California California Bar Association Association is trying to come after me, but in such a ridiculous way that it's easy to fight them off. But we cannot let that stop us, and we must not let that stop us. Ultimately, um, I keep saying that I'm not a, relig a religious person because I don't believe in organized religion. It's all about power as far as I'm concerned, but I do believe in a higher power still. <laughs> there is uh, something that my wife calls cosmic balance or cosmic equilibrium, and it's all out of whack. So ultimately, that force will come to our aid. I still believe that, um, and uh, I believe it even more uh, now that I've seen what's going on here. But uh, we cannot just sit there and not do anything. We must continue with our efforts at getting out the truth. We must continue with our um, legal efforts as well. Indeed, and I, I want to assure you that um, I'm, I'm always available to you if you should need any information or help 
with the you know the aspect of this case that has to do with the media because their their culpability i've been saying for at least a year and a half that um mass demonstrations should now focus on the media yeah. you know not not government buildings that the media can you know protests the media can then ignore or misrepresent the media headquarters should be the target of, of yes. uh, robust protests you know the new york times times square the whole building should be surrounded by a, a peaceful multitudes you know uh because they have so much to answer for you know their 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 guilt is uh, practically beyond expression you may very well become uh, a major witness, a major expert witness uh, in one of these legal efforts in this in this country, in the U.S. Well, I would be honored. I very much uh, appreciate you taking this time. This was very, very instructive. I'm once again, I'm sure that most if all viewers will see that this is. One of the most important pieces of the whole puzzle, the role of the media. Absolutely. We'll be in touch, Mark. It, okay. it was a pleasure. It yes. was a real pleasure. Same here. Thank you. Thank you both. And thanks, Corbin. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Ah, we have no, we, we have, have no two was? clips. Viviane, we have no two clips. Viviane, which um, I want to make sure that we have them. One is, let me look up, it's a clip. I, the first very, very impressive is a European parliamentarian, parliamentarian Korea Delhi, who says more war is no solution. More war is no solution for Ukraine. She is very powerful. Two minutes, 35, and a German lawyer, maybe they have uh, banned him, um, Klaus Blantiker anyway, who impressively describes how judges in Germany are not independent and there is no uh, separation of powers in Germany. <clears throat> But uh, you're under pressure as well, aren't you? Yes, I think it's going, but this is the end of the session anyway. And it's fascinating uh, what we heard about today. And I really found the last statement there interesting to see everything from his perspective, the propaganda uh, aspect. And it's really a huge problem that we're uh, struggling with here. It's really the source of evil, at least in terms of what people believe in. So um, in this sense, as you said, will keep it up and i think our voice must not be silenced because otherwise uh, this will really get completely out of control um, but uh, i think they've been cornered already um, for them to react like this it'll be interesting to monitor what's happening in the us and italy etc so yes um, great to have you all watching and i really rely on donations we really rely on donations um, we'd be happy to be uh, supported uh, we need technical support of course and we um, need to use our uh, donations for that so uh, we've reached the end of the session so um, everybody have a nice weekend a good uh, friday evening and we'll see you again next week okay we'll do that and we stand a chance to win 
Okay, schönes Wochenende. Have a nice weekend. Goodbye. Grazie, Presidente. So, the EU solution to the war in Ukraine is more war. Pile in the weapons, splurge on militarism, threaten to engage in all-out economic and financial war against Russia. So the same things you were doing already and expecting a different result, the true definition of madness. How is not selling Kerrygold butter to Russia going to save any Ukrainian lives? How is buying filthy fracked US gas going to stop the war? They won't, of course, because nowhere have sanctions ever succeeded in ending a military assault or achieving regime change. But what they have done is unleash economic devastation. This time round, which will be paid for by the people of Russia, including those out protesting against the war, and increasingly being paid for by the citizens of Europe, facing massive energy price hikes, inflation, and a catastrophic decline in their living standards. Talk about shooting ourselves in the foot. And of course, this moral outrage of Russia's illegal war, which has sparked this lunacy, is in sharp contrast to the lack of any such scruples in terms of the illegal US wars in Iraq or Afghanistan, which we not only didn't condemn, but we actually joined in and continued to do business with them all the way. No such scruples about Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen. And even as the victims of those conflicts in the last few meet, weeks meet to desperately seek financial pledges for their humanitarian crisis, they're being left short by billions, while we're happy to spend billions prolonging the war in Ukraine. Makes me absolutely sick. Seven weeks ago, German's Chancellor Schulz correctly said, peace in Europe cannot be won against Russia. But that's exactly what we're doing. Yes, Russia bears responsibility for this conflict. Of course they do. But we cannot ignore the role of NATO. And the EU, instead of promoting peace and acting in the interests of the people of Europe, the Ukrainians, the EU citizens, and yes, the Russian citizens too, has become a tool of NATO and the military-industrial complex. What is needed is an end to the conflict, an end to militarism, a ceasefire and a negotiated settlement. We should restore our role as a diplomatic one of promoting peace. Anything else makes us complicit. We assume a judge to be able to think independently Basically, yes. Practically, however, at the moment, no, because the force of the system limits them. We have no sovereignty of the people. Uh, judges are not elected by the people, which would oblige the judges to follow the sense of righteousness for the of the people. Le judges are. Uh, appointed by the ministers and the ministers are executive so we have a combination of a uh, justice minister as a parliamentarian as an executive uh, government body and top boss of the judges we unify the three powers in the state legislative judicative and executive so that's the opposite of uh, 
uh, separation of powers. Yes, it's the opposite. Uh, it's the worst than Montesquieu had imagined in his worst dreams. This is tyranny um, uh, added by Caesar European. That means the censor plus the Pope controlling the thinking of the people is the worst thinkable tyranny possible. The judge has no natural feeling of morality, although as a person they would be suitable. I have got to know perfect people who personally um, say something is going wrong, I can't change it, I'm a part of the system, I have to feed my family. But this lack of the system stop the or prevent proper uh, rulings. That means the citizen does not find a judge who can speak right, who can rule right, because uh, the balance of power is not in place and uh, there is, of course, a lack of success following by this. So we simply accepted that political education has convinced us that we can't uh, hark back to our connections. Well, we do have these bindings, but they are taken away from us by a misguided education system, uh, especially in the area of political training, early sexualization, early digitization, all these things, and uprooting. Even Stalin, who is known as a dictator, had uh, taken globalization, uh, calling it visa rodney polytonit, uh, uprooted global citizen. We don't need to, he criticized that even. We don't need to look at our own bad examples. We find it everywhere. Criticism is normal, of course. It uh, comes from the situation that we're in. You just have to be open and do not limit your thoughts to any ideologies that are spread in school, in kindergarten even. Well, let me just shout, help, I don't want that. Yes, uh, citizens' initiative fighting this is the only way, again, against this tyrannous. Hmm.